0: Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, where I'll be interviewing Jim Apparel in a little bit. Just before we get started, I just wanted to bring to everybody's attention that we have been nominated for a Rondo Award for Best Podcast. Last year we were nominated for Best Interview, and this year we're in the Best Podcast category. There's a lot of our friends that have guested on this show that are also nominated in that same category. And I'm just going to tell you, vote for the one your heart tells you to vote for. I'm not going I'm to, th- I'm just happy to be nominated. You know, just to get into the category itself is just, um, puts me sky high, puts Ben and Michaela sky high too. So we're just hoping to do well in it, but just to be nominated in it is an honor in itself. So I will leave instructions on how to Vote for the Rondo Awards, for those that are unfamiliar with it, on our Facebook page. So that way, if you want to vote, feel free to follow those instructions and you can vote. And um, there's other categories you can vote for, too. And again, some of these people have been guests or did episodes with us in the past, like Sam Irvin for Best Interview and those kind of things. Ansel Farage is in the category for Best um, Short Film. So there's a lot of different people. I'm leaving some people out, I'm sure, that are nominated in different categories So feel free to vote for him. And another person who's been on our episodes a lot is Joshua Kennedy. And um, we're running out of time for his Indiegogo campaign. It ends March 16th. So we're going to listen to the promo for Saturnalia one more time. But feel free to help him out. Get a, you know, get a Blu-ray from him or a Blu-ray poster or whatever. He has many different combination deals you can go for. But the key thing is help support an independent filmmaker so that way they can keep making their films. After we hear the Saturnalia promo, we'll move into the interview, and then I'll talk to you guys afterwards. Enjoy.
1: It's the same old story. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy brings to life cartoon cave girl from outer space.
0: Her name is
1: Saturnalia. She's a, a, a cave girl from outer space. She
0: has laser eyes and she talks in speech bubbles and she fights crime. Just listen to me. I am telling the truth. Saturnalia, the new Joshua Kennedy film. Check out the Indiegogo for the official Blu ray edition. Click the link in this episode's show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm joined by special effects guru, Jim Apparel, who's done many different films, Planet of the Dinosaurs. He's also been involved in John Carpenter's The Thing, Ghostbusters, Evil Dead 2. His credit list is lengthy. Some of these he had a major hand in taking care of the effects. Some of these he had a smaller hand. But he was involved in films I love and my family loves like Scooby-Doo. I mean, it's just an amazing list. How are you doing today, Mr. Apparel? Oh, very well, thank you. Very well. Thanks. I want to thank you again for taking time out of your day, you know, to join me to talk about your work. I mean, you like I said, you, have, you have an impressive long history of doing a lot of different effects, but before we get to those movies, what led you to go down this career path? What, what was like when you were younger, what drove you to go to special effects or stop motion?
1: Well, I think the thing that got me into it initially even before I understood what special effects and movies might be, you know, when I was very young, like a lot of young children, I had a fascination with dinosaurs. I think that was the first thing, you know, so I, I remember, you know, when I was quite young going to the public library with my parents and then I would always head, you know, for the dinosaur books. And usually they were more, you know, in, in those days, there really weren't books specifically for children. So, you know, these, you know, were, you know, considered more of an adult topic. So I might not be able to read and understand the whole thing, but I certainly, you know, was looking at all the pictures and trying to understand it. And also uh, uh, because, uh, you know, how long ago this was that I was, you know, looking at these books, and even at that time, the books might have been, you know, 20 years old. These were uh, very early concepts of dinosaurs. So uh, the dinosaurs that I grew up with, you know, didn't even look like the ones in Jurassic Park, you know, the, the uh, style of, uh, you know, or because of what scientists have discovered, you know, then the style of the art, the look of the art has changed over the years. And, you know, my, you know, uh, there is a great paleo artist by the name of Charles R. Knight that is still one of my heroes because, uh, you know, his work may not be scientifically accurate because he was uh, painting these things, you know, murals and, uh, illustrations more than a hundred years ago, but as an artist, he's still my favorite. And so, uh, I think you know the since there was that fascination with dinosaurs, I'm sure that when I first saw like a dinosaur on TV, um, you know, it just completely grabbed me. You know that I, you know, I wouldn't know how it was done, but if this thing, you know, especially you know to a young child and you know, that early stage, you know, before special effects were well known, something today that, you know, the young people today would be able to, you know, immediately tell was, you know, artificial, you know. You know, I'd probably look at it back then and just, you know, be so amazed. I, I do remember uh, specifically there was a movie called Dinosaurus, uh, came out in 1960, and, that's the first one I remember because it made such a big impression on me. I discovered it when I uh, went to the, I was at the local uh, thrifty drugstore, you know, the, going shopping with my parents and uh, they had comic book racks and there was, and I saw there was a comic book there with a dinosaur on the cover of it. So I immediately was going to get that. And when I looked inside, you know, it, it wasn't just a comic book story about a dinosaur. There were actually photos from the movie. And, you know, once I realized that, you know, a movie was going to be coming out soon, you know, I, I it was actually my grandmother who you know, took me to see it. She, you know, was uh, very kind that way, taking me to see some, you know, movies that I'm sure she wasn't into, but, you know, she would often take me to see these oddball things. So I remember seeing that in the, the story was just kind of right for a kid that age. And I think that's what, you know, immediately uh, caught my attention. And then, uh, but still, I didn't quite know how it was done. You know, I, uh, I'm i sure it is, you know, I realized that they weren't real dinosaurs, but, you know, how they put them up on the screen uh, took a little while. And actually what uh, I, I remember actually, what really kind of turned the corner, helped me turn the corner there. Are you familiar with a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland? Yes, I am. Yeah, and Forey Ackerman, who edited the magazine in the early days. Yes. Anyway, it was, it was actually a copy of that magazine that uh, was the next big step. And that was a couple of years after Dinosaurus. So, uh, you know, I may have seen other things in between, but sometimes these the certain uh, things are you know, like, you know, when a movie comes out, or a special issue of a magazine, they're kind of easier to pinpoint. And actually, you know, I I, I dug it up. I, you know, I'll show you what it is. This this is the copy here. It was uh, issue number 24 from 1963, and it was the uh, beginning of a uh, like a four-part article on the making of King Kong, and uh, there was a photo in there of a. Uh, is the armature for the stop-motion puppet. You know, the, uh, the stop-motion puppets that are animated frame by frame by hand need a, an armature of some kind in there to hold them in position. The puppet's going to be usually made out of some sort of foam rubber and uh, latex, and uh, but, you know, they still need something to be able to hold them, and the very simple ones might have wire, and the more complicated ones our uh, machine joints. And this one had a photo of the King Kong armature. And I remember that was a huge revelation. I studied that photo for a long time and, you know, and read the article over again and again, and then waited for each I- new is- issue to come out. And also at that point, I started tracking down other issues that I'd missed. And it turned out there was also a, like a three-part, uh, story of Ray Harryhausen, which also, um, you know, reading that, you know, so suddenly I had a lot of information that I didn't have before, and that uh, that's really what got me started. You know, that, so if it wasn't for Famous Monsters, there really wouldn't have been any place even explaining how this was done, because there, you know, certainly we didn't have, uh, you know, the internet and YouTube, and uh, there weren't books on it, and certainly... Uh, I think Famous Monsters was really the first place, especially that a fan could look and and get that information.
0: Yeah, because a lot of listeners don't remember is that you brought up, this information was hard to find. Not everybody knew who Willis O'Brien was. Not everybody knew who Ray Harryhausen was. And it was very few spots where you could go and get information about how they did stop motion and how they basically changed films by making their creations and doing all that stuff.
1: Yeah, Forry Ackerman, you know, the the editor of Famous Monsters, he was very good on putting in, like, the -the behind-the-scenes stories of these things. You know, he'd, of course, talk about the actors, you know, there was always a lot about Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney, but, you know, when he would talk, say, about Lon Chaney Sr., you know, the actor in the silent films, he'd also talk a lot about how Chaney did his own makeup and created the Phantom of the Opera, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and many other characters. And he'd show photos of Lon Chaney there with his makeup kit and give uh, you kind of before and after photos. And then he would also, of course, do that with, uh, you know, the articles about Ray Harry house And it wasn't just a photo of a dinosaur or something from Seth's Voyage of Sinbad. He'd have photos of Ray there actually with the stop-motion puppets. you would get an idea of the size of it. I remember even, I'm pretty, I'd have to look it up. I I think I remember which issue this was, but, you know, there was even a photo of Ray Harryhausen standing next to a camera. And I remember uh, you could see the animation motor on it. And, you know, at a later time I analyzed that and it helped me to build my own animation motor, you know, at a much later time. But there was always information there, you know, if you kind of wanted to go over it. and, And... Forry was also a very, uh, generous and giving person too, because the, the people who were, were here or in Los Angeles, where Forry was, you know, local to that area, he would, uh, have, them, have people over to his house and, uh, you know, and he had an incredible collection of things. Some of the, uh, dinosaur puppets from King Kong and some of Ray Harryhausen's puppets and things. And you could see these things in person, you know, right there. And, uh, he was always
0: very open and sharing these things. And that's the wonderful thing is you taking that time because, again, there were no classes back then on how to do stop motion. It was pretty much learn on your own. And, and by you seeing these pictures, you're able to intuit how to do certain things, you know, from seeing those pictures of the armatures, which is to me is fascinating because it's almost like reverse engineering. You're seeing the end product. You're like, okay, now that's the end product. How do I get – from here to there. I think that that is just ingenious how some people like yourself are able to take those pictures and those, those few little crumbs of clues and are able to um, make up, make their work and and find out how to do it.
1: Well, what also helps, I mean, once I started, you know, to study these things and get an idea how it worked, you know, I also started to keep an eye out for other people who might be interested in these things. And, you know, very early on, I, I met a guy, his name uh, is Rob Maine. He's a few years older than I was. and he, But he also lived in the same, you know, town that I was. But I think, you know, we just kind of, uh, I think we ended up meeting, uh, because I had placed an ad in the paper about, uh, you know, selling some, you know, extra magazines I had, and he, he wanted the back issue. So that's, why he called and then we just got to talking and and uh, you know then matt he he had actually been doing some stop motion on his own and he showed me his eight millimeter uh tests and uh, you know that further inspired me to get into it and i you know talked my parents into letting me get an eight millimeter camera of my own and rob and i actually worked on a couple of films together where uh, mostly, we would just shoot different sequences and kind of cut them together. But where they were, sort, you know, the idea was they were all going to kind of go together. And we did, it. we did one of these, you know, like a five-minute, 8 mil- eight-millimeter film, and then uh, uh, took it over to Forey Ackerman's house one afternoon and showed it to the fans. And then Forey ran a little article on it on the, um, the fan page, and that was nice, you know, a couple of pages. Uh, I mean, a couple of photos from our movie. And uh, and then I uh, also, uh, the other kind of uh, time that, uh, you know, really helped me in learning. Um, are you familiar with a movie called Equinox? Yes. Yeah. Equinox was a, uh, it's, a it's a film that was made by uh, young people who were amateurs at the time. You know, many of them went on, you know, to very, uh, you know, major careers, you know, after this, but the main person that uh, was kind of behind it is uh, Dennis Mieron, you know, who, you know, he was doing this, I think, he was either in high school or maybe going to the city college at the time, but basically he was still, you know, a teen and doing this movie with his friends. But his idea, you know, whereas I had just in, done like a five-minute film in 8 millimeter he wanted to do a feature length film and was doing it in 16 millimeter. And so he was shooting the whole thing. So it was going to come out, you know, over an hour long and, you know, have the story to it. And, uh, uh he was working on that. And, uh, the way I discovered it, uh, there, there was an article in a local newspaper. I remember it said something like area youth, uh, you know, creating a monster movie or something like that. And that, uh, you know, really amazed me that oh, there's some young people, you know, people that aren't much older than than I am, and they're actually making their own movies. So, uh, using this article, I eventually tracked down Dennis and called him up, and uh, you know, he was very helpful in explaining a lot of things. You know, I tell him what I had done so far, and he kind of uh, tell me what the next step might be. You know, have a things that maybe I should try to learn, and he. Point me in the right direction, and you know he was extremely helpful
0: in, in that way. It's amazing how the, the community gets together and helps each other out, you know, and able to get those things because nowadays people are able to get a hold of each other so much easier, you know. And back then, it's just by sheer luck or circumstance, or as you said, answering an ad that you put out for magazines, and you find this out, and you're looking in a newspaper, mm-hmm. and you find it about the other person, and because people were not getting so much, I'm so barraged by people contacting them, they're more likely to take that call and answer and say, Oh yeah, we this is how we do this. And then to help pass the torch or to help, you know, give well, those different tidbits. And I think that's wonderful how the community and stop motion and effects and, and just basically artists in general are so good at bonding together and working to get that art form out.
1: Well, I was all, I mean, I think thanks to famous monsters that, Uh, told the names to the people who had done the classic films like King Kong. Uh, You know, I knew, you know, I I knew the names of the people who had actually done some of this work and what they had done. And, uh, you know, one of the names that kept coming up uh, was Marcel Delgado, the man who had built uh, puppets for Willis O'Brien. He built the dinosaurs in the silent lost world. He built King Kong and then he built mighty Joe Young. And of course he also had a career doing a lot of other things in between those shows but I knew the name very well and uh, he was one of the names I would go down to uh, the library and once again things were you know we didn't have the internet but we did have phone books and so I would I had a list of names and I went through phone books until something came up and I found a, you know, a Marcel Delgado and uh, uh, got in touch with him and You know, he had a couple of us over to his house and uh, showed us his scrapbooks and spent the whole evening, you know, letting us look at his scrapbooks and, you know, telling us how he had done these things. Uh, Another person I met the same way uh, was uh, Hua Chang, who also was, uh, you know, a major uh, model maker. And, uh, you know, he'd gone back and actually worked on uh, the George Powell puppetoons and also worked on many George Powell films, you know, like uh, Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm and Tom Thumb and things like that. And he also had me over to his house. And uh, that was probably like about 1970 or so. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, he, he at that point, Waugh had pretty much retired from doing feature work, but he had started making educational films on his own. And he was just starting to make a, uh, a, di- a dinosaur documentary. For schools, called Dinosaurs: The Terrible Lizards, and he, you know, had a couple of the puppets that he was building, and uh, and I remember that was the first place that I heard the name uh, Doug Beswick because Doug was uh, going to animate all of those shots for him, and uh, later I worked with Doug on a number of shows, but uh, you know, it was just it really just kind of evolved. You know, you meet somebody, you you learn something, you maybe you know, get a name, you might not meet this other person, you know, for a while, but, you know, eventually, you know, the paths cross, And um, that was weird. You know, that's basically how it had to be done at that time. Since uh, you know, most of the information was gained, you know, by talking directly to somebody. And uh, luckily most of the people, as I say, were extremely nice. You know, people like Wall and Marcel uh, having me over to their, home uh, linwood dunn who had done the optical effects on king kong and uh you know many many movies so you know, he was one of the people actually behind uh, creating the optical critter uh he was still running a company called film effects of hollywood and uh you know so i would I, I went over there several times and you know he would talk with me about various things he even loaned me an armature that had been used in, it's a mad, mad, mad world. And let me, you know, take that home and use it on a project and then, you know, return it later. But, uh, you know, people were incredibly giving back then.
0: It's, it's kind of like a craftsman with an apprentice type issue where, you know, you're, you're, you're the apprentice, they're the craftsman and they're bringing you in and showing you the different things. And eventually working you, you know, helping you learn the trade so that you can pass it on to the next person and so on. I guess that, you know, is the approach. It sounds like the the age-old tradition.
1: Yeah, I think it probably was pretty close to that. Yeah, for the most part, uh, anybody I would get in touch with was usually, you know, uh, very uh, generous with their information. I can't think of anybody who, you know, was ever rude or anything or, you know, told me to just, you know, get out of there. You know, if anybody... If anybody, if the person had the time to help, you know they generally did.
0: And I think that's just like most people in real life are nice people. Most people in Hollywood, especially in the um, the behind the scenes part, are very kind and giving, you know, because they're doing it to help make this work, to get them in the film, and to get it created, to develop their character, which they get to create and bring to life. I think that's that's pretty wild.
1: Yeah, it's generally worked out that way. Well, I mean, even to this day, I mean, you know, I just, you know, when I'm working on a show these days, you know, of course, now it's all on a computer, but I found that, you know, the various people, you know, in the same shop where I'm working, you know, if I'm having trouble figuring out, you know, something about how to get part of the program to work, there's always somebody who, you know, is, you know, very, open and helping, you know, that. So that's true. Even today, you know, if there's uh, I've always been very fortunate with uh, just how, uh, how helpful
0: people have been. Oh, I, I understand, I understand perfectly well. And that's what I'm saying. In general, most people are going to be there to help you out. Most people are team players. They want their, they want mm-hmm. you to succeed because if you succeed, their work succeeds, everybody succeeds where if you, if you go down then their work, can get dragged down with it. So it's, it makes sense to, for people long-term to help each other out to make everything better.
1: Yeah, I've known a few people who were sort of the opposite, you know, that were, uh, you know, seemed to be more concerned, you know, about, you know, themselves so that, you know, they, uh, and, you know, it, the irony of it is in the long run, uh, it actually seemed to, have, you know, to have hurt them, you know, the people who were, you know, who I'd look back and say, well, that person was was a bit selfish back in the day. Uh, you know, I you know that attitude actually kind of you know hurt them, and I think actually held them back. You
0: know,
1: so it uh, you know ultimately it seemed to actually help to uh, share these things and uh, help each other along.
0: Yeah, develop that good karma. Now, what led you to be involved with your first movie? Which, for listeners, I've never seen this movie. I've only seen like excerpts of some of the effects. Flesh Gordon.
1: Yeah, well, Flesh Gordon, yeah, that was the first feature film that I worked on. And it was mostly, again, because of, uh, you know, people that I knew, uh, you know, because that was the time, you know, when I was, in, as I mentioned, I was in touch with Dennis Muren quite a lot. And he had already, I think, been working on commercials and things. So, he, you know, he was doing professional work, but uh, he was hired to photograph the miniatures of Flesh Gordon. And, you know, actually part of what actually yeah, made that film successful in the way it is, I mean, it, it you know, it literally it was going to start out and just be kind of a raunchy porno, uh, you know, when the producers were going to make it, you know, they'd made other porno films that was their, you know, basically what they did. And, you know, so they came up with this idea. What kind of worked out well for everybody is initially, they got some very talented people on it that uh, uh, I think initially, that like two of the names that come to mind was uh, Tom Sherman, who was building props and miniatures for them, and Mike Miner, who was their art direction, doing the art direction, were both incredibly talented. And just the work that they were doing on this film, you know, raised the quality, you know, above where I think the producers ever expected it, and then you know, when they got Dennis, you know, who started to shoot, like, the spaceships and the castles and things, you know, the film just started looking better and better, so in the long run, they decided to cut out the, you know, really raunchy stuff, make it, you know, it's still, you know, I guess, you know, we definitely, you know, get an R rating, but, you know, it's not you know, not a hardcore porto at this point, and so they cut out all the really raunchy things and actually started putting more and more into uh, getting the special effects done. And so, you know, I knew that... I knew uh, primarily I think it's because of Dennis Muir, and, you know, he must have told me that they were working on it, and I, you know, and uh, like where it was, and I went by to visit. And so, you know, I, I, I went there several times. What happened is... Uh, you know, they got to the point where, you know, it looked like the film was, or the effects were finished. And uh, the people who were, you know, basically contracted to do it or who had been doing it, you know, went on to do other things because, you know, they'd done everything that was required of them. And they were, you know, the film was in its editing stage. But what happened is uh, the editor, as he was putting these things together, came up with a number of shots that, you know, he, said the film needed, and, you know, the producers were uh, behind the film enough that, you know, they wanted, you know, to take it to whatever level they could. So rather than just putting it out and cashing, you know, as quickly as they could, they decided to uh, do these added shots, and it was at that point that, uh, you know, I was able to get hired because, uh, you know, all the original people, or a lot of them anyway, had gone on to do other things, so they didn't have a really a very big crew anymore, and I'd already been doing some of these, you know, home movies the stop motion at home, uh, I started using front projection at home, you know, uh, again, but mainly because of things that Dennis Mirren taught me, but I was studying it on my own and trying to learn it at home, so I had uh, film that showed these things that I'd been working on, and I could show them that to the people. Mike Miner was actually still working on the film, the art director, and he, at that point, uh, was you know, also the head of the special effects. So I think it probably was Mike who must have decided to hire me on. And so I uh, primarily got on there as, you know, like a, a lighting and camera assistant. And then, uh, you know, actually, I, uh, I wanted to do some stop motion. Although I wasn't officially hired to do the stop motion, uh, the guy who was animating at the facility where I was—it was a uh, small uh, building in Eagle Rock, in uh, uh, which is just kind of between Pasadena and Los Angeles. So the person who was animating most of that footage was also Rob Maine who I mentioned earlier. You know, I worked—you know—we'd done some of those amateur films together, so I also knew what Rob was doing. So I, I kind of got hired on to like assist him with you know some camera setups and things like that. And I I decided you know I I'd, like to, I'd really like to try to animate this, but so what I did is uh, you know one weekend, you know I had the keys and everything. I you know why, you know how I ended up with the keys, I don't even remember, you know but, you know I guess maybe because I'd get there earlier to kind of get things set up but I decided to go in on my own and I animated, you know, a shot of uh, the monster that you see at the end of the film, just, you know, just to see what I could do. And then, you know, come Monday, and you know, I took it in and, uh, you know, had it developed and it just came back and was shown in dailies. And I, you know, I didn't even tell anybody it was coming up and people were, you know, liked it enough that they said, Oh, well, we'll give you a few shots to do. So that's kind of how I, Yeah, But I didn't do a whole lot. I I think I only got maybe about four or five shots in the film. So, but, you know, it was a a great place to begin and be learning, you know, just kind of taking each step as it comes.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the thing. You have to, you have to start somewhere and you got, you know, you get in there and you start to do this, that show the initiative, start to work and, and they like what they're seeing and which of course was great because it led you to do other things. And just before I talk about the one movie you helped that you wrote and did the special effects for *Planet the dinosaurs, I'm not sure. I know somewhere along the timeline, you met Ray Harryhausen and I'm not sure what, when, when, I'm not sure if we passed that part already when you met him or not. Well, yeah,
1: actually, uh, you know, the, the day I met Ray Harryhausen was a very important day for me in several regards. So that was also, uh, I met Ray Harryhausen for the first time at the home of Forrest J. Ackerman, the editor of Famous Monsters. And as I said, Forrest was very uh, giving to the fans, and uh, he, you know, he's been good friends with uh, uh, Ray Harryhausen for many years. They known each other, I think, since they were teenagers. You know, they also, you know, Ray Bradbury was also a good friend of theirs. So they, but uh, but uh, but Forey, uh put together what I guess you would call a meet-and-greet for Ray Harry House. And so at his house, one Saturday afternoon, you know, they invited maybe about, you know, 20 or so, or maybe 20 or 30. It couldn't have been much more than that, because it it was just a house. You couldn't fit that many people in there. But, you know, the local fans were told, you can come over and meet Ray Harry House. And so that's what we did. We, you know, met at Corey Ackerman's and, uh, you know, Actually, got to meet Ray for the first time. But what was also important in my life at, at that same time, uh, on that same day, I met another uh, teenager who was doing, uh, you know, wanting to do animation and special effects. Uh, and I, and, or at the time, as I say, we were in high all in high school. But his name is Stephen Sherkus, and uh, he became a very important person in my life. Uh, turned out, he was he also lived not far from where I lived him you know, the next town over so it wasn't you know pretty easy to get together and uh, what he was really good at was uh, sculpting he could build the beautiful models and things he I mean he did the other things you know the animation and stuff but you know he his uh, greatest talent was the sculpting it turned out you know my my main talent was usually photography so uh, you know, even though, again, you have to kind of learn to do everything, but then you have, like, a specialty that maybe you're best at. But anyway, Stephen and I uh, got to know each other you know, over the years. And then it was actually, you know, with Stephen that uh, we started on Planet of Dinosaurs. That's, uh, you know, we had worked for a number of years on uh, just kind of doing little projects together and experimenting and things, and I used one of his stop-motion puppets, Uh, to uh, do a monster, you know, for a a movie, for a film class I was taking at the City College, you know, so things like that, but... Oh, and of course, the other person that uh, I met that same day, again, uh, very important people in my life, was Phil Tippett. You know, he was there also, and uh, of course, you know, Phil went on to an incredible career, you know, Jurassic Park and uh, Star Wars and everything. He's one of, you know, along with Ray Harryhausen, who's probably the best-known person you know, in the stop motion field. But, you know, he was also, uh, you know, basically a teenager then and uh, bringing in his puppets to show to Ray Harryhausen like everybody else. So, you know, it was, it was very, you know, an amazing day. You know, we go there to meet Ray Harryhausen, which was incredible. But on the same day, I meet Phil Tippett and uh, Stephen Cherikis, and they turned out to be two of the most uh, positive and uh, major influences in my life over the years.
0: (laughs) It's amazing who you can meet at a a party or a meeting green in this case and and develop those long lasting relationships. And it's, it's something I always tell my children. When you go to these different things, when you do different things in life, talk to the people next to you because you never know what that can lead to. And, and, you know, knowledge wise, connection wise, or whatever you want to look at it, it's just, or just finding out what their lives are like. And my son, one time when he was in Boy Scout camp for a jamboree, Ben um, was talking to somebody that was next to him as an adult leader. And they had this great conversation, 15, 20 minutes. And at the end of the conversation, Ben said, Oh, my name is Ben Turek. And he said, Oh, I'm, I'm Gustav, the King of Sweden. So he was talking to the King of Sweden. <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> well. Yeah, that's the thing. You just never know who, you know, is going to be there at your side.
0: <laughs> and and obviously he was there being a scout leader and just wanted to have that enjoyable conversation and just find out, you know, from this this young man's point of view what everything was like going on over here in the United States. And it was just kinda that that's what it is. You have people of a common interest. And you already yeah. have that common thing, Ray Harryhausen and stop motion. And then you can just broaden from there. And that's, that's the great thing of life. Yeah.
1: It's been, you know, I consider myself to have been very fortunate to have uh, been able to do that because, you know, you, you look back on these things and say, well, you know, if this hadn't happened, you know, would, would any of the other things have happened, you know, maybe in a different way or maybe not, there's no way to really tell. But, you know, just uh, the things that did happen. You know, have uh, you know, so many positive things did
0: happen. I you know, feel very grateful for that. And what I'm grateful for is, again, seeing your work. And one of the things I enjoyed watching was *Planet of Dinosaurs*, which you took your love of dinosaurs and you put the film and helped develop those creatures. And you, it's not just like one or two. Di- you have a lot of dinosaurs in there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. You know, I I would have to say in that case, I mean, you know, there was a group of us that did the the special effects, but the person who I think was the most important in getting that project done was the man, uh, Jim Shea, the man who produced and directed it. And, you know, over the years, you know, when, you know, if anybody does write about the film or talk about it, they'll say, oh, the movie stinks. You know, uh, the live action, yeah, it wasn't very good, but and then they'll say, Yeah, the only reason to see it's the stop motion. But what they don't realize is that you know, if it wasn't for Jim Shay's dedication and just you know his tenacity and just you know, he had a passion for getting a movie done. And he, you know, I Stephen and I, you know, wanted to do these things, but I don't think we would have ever, you know, been able to put the feature film together. He already had had a uh, like a distribution company, he had a little bit of background and Sort of knew some of the ins and outs in Hollywood that Stephen and I would not have known. So you know he brought that talent there, and uh, you know was able to start raising money. And uh, initially, uh, uh, we met a uh, uh, a writer by the name of David Gerald, uh, and uh, you know I think it was at a convention. You know he. Uh, yeah, at this time, he would have already uh, written that uh, Trouble with Triples, because this was after Star Trek, so he was well-known for Star Trek and, you know, a lot of other things, so, he, you know, he was well-known at that time, but I think he, uh, Stephen and I were at a convention, and Stephen brought along one of his dinosaurs, so that got a conversation going, and, uh, you know, David Gerald was interested in, you know, maybe doing a project with us, you know, and he you know he had a a story about dinosaurs and you know initially we you know had hoped to do that and we started to develop toward that but then you know it just worked out that unfortunately uh you know he had different ideas and um you know we we weren't able to kind of you know clear the rights, so we you know we just weren't able to do the story that uh you know that he had shown us but we already had a kind of a project underway so you know, his was a time travel story. So, uh, you know, since some things we had already done, like, uh, you know, I know that, like, the laser weapons were already built, a few things like that. And I think even, uh, you know, the idea was you know, I had to come up with a story that, you know, could incorporate the things that we already had, you know, like some of the props and stuff, but, you know, not, uh, you know, uh, use anything you know that that uh, David had created so you know since it was basically a science fiction with dinosaurs you know we're not going to do time travel which was his story so I just decided okay we'll put it on another planet and uh, you know again what an entirely different story <clears throat> I think when I started out uh you know my my first uh title of the treatment was uh Mysterious planet, because I was looking at it kind of like Mysterious Island, you know, these castaways on the island and how they survive. So, you know, the first time I wrote out a treatment, that was more what I was going for. And then, uh, you know, uh, at some point we decided Planet of Dinosaurs would be, you know, easier to, you know, sell. So we came up with that title. And, you know, we just, uh, Jim Shea raised the money and uh, later on another. Man by the name of Jim White came in and helped us raise money to finish it. Uh, so he was also very important. And uh, again, I uh, Stephen and I primarily did, like I, I told you, that you know our own specialty. Stephen, you know, sculpted all the dinosaurs and built them, and I, you know, did all the photography. We started out splitting up the stop motion, but we had so much uh, that we had written into the story that. We decided that, you know, it was going to be unlikely, you know, the two of us working on it was going to take forever. So uh, I looked up uh, uh, Doug Beswick, who I mentioned earlier, the person who who I had heard was, uh, you know, when he was working with uh, Wash Chang on Dinosaurs, the Terrible Lizards, and uh, we brought Doug Beswick in as the key animator, and... uh, Again, also just as an example of people helping you out, another person that I met along the way, I think through Dennis Murin, was uh, Jim Danforth, who was one of the great stop-motion animators of all time. You know, he incredible talent. He can do almost anything. He's a mad artist, a sculptor. uh, He can build the armatures, and his stop-motion, as I say, is among the best that anybody's ever done. And he was also... uh, very giving and open with his information. And uh, uh, so, you know, if I had a technical question, he was always very open in discussing things and, and pointing out, you know, what some options are. And uh, eventually he even uh, volunteered to do some map paintings for the film. So, uh, you know, once again, another, uh, another, you know, really great person, you know, who came along and uh, really helped us out a lot. And I think- so... I always look at that as, you know, it was a very much of a teamwork thing. You know, it's uh, you know, we each did our, our part and, you know, everybody was devoted to getting it done, but, you know, it was really important to kind of get these key people together that uh, we could all work with.
0: It is. And one thing I'm curious about, how difficult is it to choreograph the stop motion with the live action? You know, I mean, that's, you know, it's because it's one of the things I know it takes longer to do to stop motion. And a lot of times I think that in some, some productions, the live action's already done ahead of time. So are you or one of you guys on the set to make sure that the live action is going to match up what you guys are planning? Or is it something you take in this particular film? Did you take what they showed you and then you had to make your stuff match up? I'm just curious how that went about.
1: Well, we, uh, yeah to to get it, uh, to get our action, you know, the live action to match up with the uh, stop motion on, on planet of dinosaurs, both Stephen and I were on the set, but I'll have to say, you know, because this was very early in our career, uh, you know, we were not really that experienced, you know, this was really our first time. So, you know, sometimes it worked out fine. And other times, uh, you know, the person might be looking around too much, you know, and, you know, we didn't really catch it when we were shooting it. So it ends up looking a little bit odd. Like, why is he looking so many different places? Well, the actor, you know, we would always go in and try to explain where the creature was going to be. You know, we'd have, you know, like a a cutout or, you know, like a stick or something that would show, like, where his eye line should be. So it's like, okay, you know, the monster is this tall, so, you know, he should be looking up, you know, 15 feet high, so we'd have a stick like that. But, you know, I think especially, though, if they were... uh, trying to do the hand-to-hand fighting, you know, that, that was the hardest part. You know, there was like a guy's poking a stick or something or trying to like wave the knife and, you know, you know, uh, get the uh, dinosaur to back away. Um, we really didn't have the experience for that. You know, we you look at, at like what Ray Harryhausen did on uh, Jason and the Argonauts and various shows, you know, or Seven Voices in that, and... You know his choreography is just perfect, and uh, the timing—you know the, the beat when the, the uh, swords would meet each other. Ray had that down perfectly. We were you know nowhere near that. We you know learned on, learned on this, and things got better over time. So. Uh, but, uh, I don't know
0: if that answers the question or not but, the, I mean, but not every time can you go out your first time and hit a home run i mean you know sometimes you just gotta you gotta get a hit and then the next time you learn how to do the next you know you know get a single next time you go for the double the triple you know what I'm saying Ray Harryhausen is just a special entity of of, of his own with what he was able oh, to yeah. do i mean it, it, it''s it's um, a high level of, of artistry right there.
1: Oh yeah! I mean, to this day, you know, even after having, you know, worked in uh, stop motion and effects, you know, all these years, I, you know, I keep learning something new about Ray's work all the time. The man, uh, such a genius and uh, uh, so incredibly creative, you know that, uh, you know, I I I never get tired of looking at his work because, you know, if I've learned something new what that does is it gives me another level to appreciate Ray's work all the more, you know, because he was already maybe doing something that I hadn't even quite realized. So, you know, to me, he, he's definitely, you know, the best, you know, that uh, there has been.
0: Uh, I'm not going to argue if you're there, because I told you before we started recording, I'm just a huge Ray Harryhausen fan and the way he was able to bring his creations to life and give them that, that spirit or character, in it, in the film and always every film I've ever, I've seen his always adds extra to it because you're getting that instead of just um, some, some movies you'll see the monster or the creature or whatever. And it's just like, they're there and it, and it doesn't take away from the film. It's just, it, it, it does a good job, but he's able to not only have that creature there, but add to the film with that personality and make it something so special that you keep going to watch it again and again and again, you just can't help it. You're addicted to it.
1: Yeah. I think that puts it very well. There's something that Ray is able to do, uh, you know, creating the character and personality of, uh, the things that he puts on the screen that I don't think anybody else, uh, is quite done. I mean, there's any number of really talented stop motion animators, but, uh, you know, to me, uh, Ray is always
0: going to be the best. No, I'm, Like I said, I'm not going to argue with you at all, because I think you and I are in perfect agreement. I mean, there's uh, there's always – the next stop-motion animator doesn't have to be the next Ray Harry house It just have to be the next whatever they are and bring what they bring to it and do what they do so well. I'm, I'm, I don't think anybody should ever say, oh, who's going to be the next this or the next that? No, who's just going to be the next great animator and just leave it at that? Right.
1: I mean, that does, you know, that, you know, it kind of takes us out of, you know, the chronological order here, but it it does take me directly to something, uh, what what you're saying there, because um, this would have been around maybe 1991. It was the year that uh, Ray Harryhausen got his Lifetime Achievement Academy Award. And, uh, uh, you know, it, and it, for those uh, technical awards, they weren't given. Uh, you know, the night that we see televised, there's actually a separate night that's set up more like a dinner, and uh, you know, after the dinner, the awards are given. And then, then they do show like uh, you know video, you know, excerpts, you know, the night of the award. But these are you know, the technical awards are a different night. But uh, anyway, so for that evening that Ray was to get his lifetime achievement award. Uh, Phil Tippett uh, asked me if I'd like to go with him. So of course, yes. I, you know, Phil took me as his guest, and so I was there the uh, you know the night that Ray got his you know award. And it, you know I was just you know so enthralled. You know I and you know and so Ray got his award, and then you know the evening's kind of wrapping up. People are just kind of you know wandering around the tables and talking to each other i'm just kind of standing by the table and you know ray was kind of making you know the circle there and talking to people and at you know a certain point you know he came over to me because we we've met you know a few times over the years you know since that time with Corey ackerman so in fact i mean he had been you know he had been uh to the studio when we were doing planet of dinosaurs and he also came to the the kind of cast and crew screening. So, you know, he was aware of what we'd been doing. But, you know, I was frankly always amazed that Ray remembered who I was. But, you know, he came up to me then. And, you know, I immediately just started to gush and say, you know, oh, this is like, the you know, this day must be wonderful for you. And, you know, I'm so excited. I feel like I got an award. And, you know, I was just kind of, you know, I'm kind of nuts there you know talking to ray so I was just so excited and he's you know and Ray, ray is always just a very modest and uh you know you know he's oh yes it, it was very nice but uh, immediately he, he you know turns it to me but he says how are you doing are, are you are you happy are you you know immediately he didn't want to talk about himself he wanted to ask he immediately just turned it and asked how i was doing so you know, this isn't a man that always has to be, you know, like feeding his ego. He's honestly interested in the people around him. And, you know, you know, I, I took a moment and I thought and I said, well, you know, when I started out, I wanted to be you. But then I, after a while, I realized that job was taken. And then all things considered, I'm very happy with the way it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's kind of, you know, what I, you know, it was. I mean, I... I really wanted to be, you know, just do everything exactly like Ray Harryhausen, you know, because, you know, when I was a kid, that that, of course, what amazed me so much. So, of course, you know, I wanted to do those things. But, you know, things work out, you know, differently in all our lives. And, you know, to this day, I'm still very happy with the way things worked out. You know, you just go in the direction that you as an individual need to do. But I, I, was, I always remember just, uh, you know, Here's Ray. You know, getting you know his Academy Award, and he's more interested in asking me how I am. So that that's just an example of uh, you know, another reason why Ray is a hero. You know, it's you know because in addition to being such a talent, he's just also uh, such an incredibly nice man.
0: He was definitely one of a kind, and, and I've, I never got a chance ever to meet him in person. But there is several people I've, who I've talked to and interviewed who have met him and knew him well, and it's just everybody's matching up with how their, their opinions of them. I don't, th- I don't think anybody's ever said anything bad about Ray Harryhausen at all. And I don't think I'll probably ever run into anybody that will. I mean, it's just, he's just <laughs> one of those people that was always kind and nice and get the work done. And, and just, it just pretty much wanted to just keep doing his job. And what can you say? The work was great.
1: Yeah. I mean, he didn't usually like to talk about how he did it, you know, or, uh, you know, he didn't reveal too many of his own secrets, but, you know, in reality, I mean, his, how he did it was, you know, once you kind of understood the basics of it, it was pretty straightforward that, you know, he, but he could turn. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, he used kind of super secret technical uh, approaches, but, you know, he he could just, he could make the best of what he had, you know, that, he could turn out just so much work and it would all be of such a high quality. He, he would always put, I think, the emphasis on the stop motion and the character of, the, of uh, his creation so more so than, you know, refining some little technical aspect. But I think, you know, in the long run, that was the right way to do it. I mean, you can look at his shows now and, of course, you know, when the monster comes on, the background looks a little bit you know contrasty and grainy because you know being done with rear projection and stuff you know that that does happen but you know frankly i don't even notice that because my eye is so drawn to his you know this this beautiful animation you know and you know i think he you know he was definitely a magician you know because he knew he, he knew how to make you look where he wanted you to look you know he didn't have to make everything perfect because he could direct your eye. He, he definitely knew the
0: importance of that. Oh, I agree. And I think well, a lot of his films, the vast majority of them, you can put children today, modern children today, and watch and just watch them being fralled with Jason and the Argonauts or um, Sinbad, any of the Sinbad movies and so on, where they're just amazed of all this brought to light these fantastical creations and, that, that that's and when you're watching them, and I know my, my children were young and they were watching these films for the first time and you can just see them just being fraud and watching the screen and you know the magic is always gonna be there, regardless of what decade. Yeah, I think that his
1: films are going to hold up quite well because you know the the characters that he created and there's a, a magic to his stories too. I mean, that's something else that I don't know you know, how many people really, you know, credit Ray with, but, you know, a a good number of the films that he worked on, you know, he would come up with the initial concept of, you know, the story, you know, if it was Sinbad or uh, you know, these various things. You know, he was the one who originated the idea of doing that. And then you know, a lot of the design of the film is his work too, because he would do these drawings ahead of time uh, that You know, if you compare the drawings to the way the film ultimately looks, uh, you know, his concept drawings really directed the look of the film. So, you know, he's coming up with stories and, uh, you know, just, you know, the art and look of the film, you know, so it goes well beyond even the animation. So these films are really his. It's not just like that he's a a technician who happened to be there and, you know, creating something that was cool, uh, he really, you know, just kind of brought these things to life. You know, the only the only other people I can think of that, you know, uh, George Powell had that kind of magic, too, you know, creating, you know, uh, a world that, you know, the children of all ages can still relate to. And of course, you know, on the really huge scale, you know, Walt Disney had the eye for that, you know, when you, uh, you know, look at like this. The things that he did, you know he, he was of course another master at just kind of you know, opening up these worlds. of course, he had you know much bigger budgets than either you know Ray Harryhausen or George Powell, but those are the three people I would say who contributed like the most to the kind of the, the fantasy films
0: and sp- and speaking of fantasy, when I was a, growing up and a lot of people around my age growing up would watch TV there was a certain TV show that you were involved with a lot of episodes of Jason of Star Command, and you were involved in the oh, effects yeah. on like I think eleven of the twenty-four episodes or something like that.
1: Yeah, that was another you know great show. I mean, I it, you know, they in some ways like like you know, my favorite some of my favorite shows were these early ones because in a, for some reason those were the ones I was able to be the most creative on, but. Yeah, Jason of Star Command, that came after Planet of Dinosaurs. And uh, what happened is Stephen and I found out that uh, Filmation was, you know, planning this new show. I don't know how we saw it. You know, maybe they mentioned it. Maybe it was a mention in Variety or maybe, you know, a friend might have, you know, told us. But, you know, we knew that they had a new uh, space show coming up, you know, live action. They had already done a show called... uh, Space Academy, which we hadn't been connected with, but we gave us an idea, you know, of, like, what they might be doing. So, you know, we cut together a reel of what we had done on Planet of Dinosaurs and uh, made an appointment, you know, to show it to them. And we, uh, that's when we met uh, Lou Scheimer, who was one of the co-owners of uh, Filmation. And he, he ultimately was the person that, you know, that I was dealing with the most. And, uh, you know, we showed him the reel. And I think almost on that very day, you know, he gave us some kind of a commitment that we would be doing something. And, uh, you know, we went from there to doing, uh, with a couple of segments on the first season, you know, the first season, I think they were 15 minute segments, kind of a part of like a bigger show. So they were the first season, they were done more like a serial. So we did, uh, the same monster appears twice as kind of an insect monster. And that's actually one of my favorites. I mean, I, I think if I had to pick a, a monster that I liked the most, it would it would actually be that one. Stephen sculpted it, of course, of course. And by that time, uh, you know, Stephen and I just split up the animation. So he'd be sculpting everything. I'd be, you know, lighting and doing the uh, front projection. And then we kind of traded off animating. So I, I don't remember... You know, exactly how it ended up. But through Jason of Star Command, it was pretty close to Stephen and me both doing like 50% of the animation, just kind of trading off. Yeah, so we did those two segments, and then when it got picked up for a second season, and those were half-hour shows, they had us back, and uh, then they committed to actually having us there full-time, you know, even though it wasn't in, you know, every we didn't have a stop motion in every show. Sometimes we'd have things, you know, that weren't stop motion that, you know, we'd add to it. I remember, for instance, they, you know, there's a couple of shots where they wanted to see their uh, spaceship. I think it was called, they called it the Starfire, but anyway, it was Jason's spaceship. They had a miniature of it that they'd use in the outer space scenes. So there would be, you know, some shots that, you know, where, uh, you know, when they're doing the live action, they basically you know, we'd lay it out and say, okay, but, you know, here's a shot where the spaceships kind of crashed and, you know, you know, on these rocks, and then there was another one where it was like in the landing bay of Space Academy, and so we shoot those, you know, like, uh, you know, background plates and, and front project them and then just put in the little model to make it look like there was a big spaceship, so sometimes we wouldn't have stop motion, but we'd have shots like that, so, you know, we kind of kept busy, you know, there's for instance, a shot where uh, Jason and uh, the lady he's with, uh, uh, you know, his assistant, they get caught you know, like in a cave, and these kind of laser beams go across and kind of keep, you know, hitting in front of them and create like laser bars. And uh, that was another shot that that I did, you know, because on the live action set. They had little little squids going off you know, where they wanted the laser beams to hit, and what I did to make the laser beams go across is they were just very thin uh, raw you know, metal rods, and you know I painted them you know red and lit it with a red light, and then just threw them enough out of focus that it looked like a glow instead of something solid, and and. Animated it, uh, I think we animated it in reverse because it was easier to do that way. You know, we had it, you know, basically I would cut it back so it, you know, it was supposed to come across and, you know, hit the, uh, the uh, rock. You know, we just kind of start with where the squid goes off and then I, you know, cut it off in about four frames. And so it was all lined up. It looks like a raised table. Bang, 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 bang. And, uh, Another one, actually, this introduced me to uh, a person I work with later is uh, the uh, the man who was doing the makeup effects on Jason, uh, a man named John Beekler, and uh, so there was there was a show where he had created a uh, oh just you know some kind of like a giant mutant sort of thing. I don't even know quite how you would describe it, but just you know this giant you know you know. Uh, you know, it was a, a rubber suit, but you know, the uh, ultimately they wanted it to look like he was twenty feet tall. So, uh, what I did is again set it up, you know, with uh, front, you know, front projection. You know, I uh, we filmed uh, Jason and his people kind of running up to a rock and reacting, and then then we filmed the guy in the suit at the proper distance and, and perspective, you know, so he could kind of be rising up. You know. It, and then in another shot, he looks in through, like, the, the cave, and I, we're basically going at, like like, something in Lost in Space, you know, that was kind of the inspiration, you know, the giant monster that just appears, and that's, you know, they're always kind of hiding there by the rock, and so, yeah, we deliberately just kind of did a Lost in Space shot there, so, you know, that that was with a rubber suit, but it was also, like, another shot, of kind of sequence that we did on the show, but yeah, that, that was a great show, that still has some really great memories for me. And uh, Lou Scheimer and I stayed friends after that show. I'd often go out. You know, he he sold, uh, you know, they sold nation so he didn't have that anymore. But he still had his own business going in office. Uh, so I, I, you know, uh, went out and had lunch with him a number of times. He was always such a, you know, a guy with such a great sense of humor. He was always fun to just be able to talk with. You know, just uh, very positive. Yeah,
0: man to be around. It was just one of those shows I just remember growing up and watching and just enjoying. And this is the time when Star Wars was coming out and later on there was Battlestar Galactic. And of course, I was already a Star Trek fan watching the reruns of the original series. So it was, oh, yeah. you know, you just love when you get to see science fiction. You know, for me, I just love watching science fiction shows, movies. Uh, I, I can go, I'm a, I'm an easy person for it because I just, I just enjoy the experience.
1: Oh, same here. Yeah, you know, I I grew up. Uh, I didn't see them when they were new, but you know when I was a kid, they were running like the, the low budget science fiction films from the fifties on TV all the time. So I grew up seeing those, even though you know it was you know maybe ten years after the movies had first played. You know they were all on TV, and I and I still love them to this day. You know the the giants and the aliens and the things. So you know, they you know, uh, a modern audience might look at it and it's cheesy maybe, but, you know, there was just, uh, you know, again, kind of a great, great kind of, you know, energy about a lot of those films that I still, still love, you know, just recently, uh, you know, a local theater here uh, uh, had kind of a special late night screening of The Incredible Shrinking Man. Now that is actually a science fiction film with very high quality, but you know, I went with some friends just you know, a few weeks ago to see that on a theater screen. And that, that film holds up really well today. You know, very watchable.
0: Oh, well, I agree. That's something I remember seeing when I was younger on, on the science fiction theater, you know, it used to come up every Saturday, you get a science fiction movie and I never seen it there. And, and, a, and a few other times growing up in my life. And it's, it's, it's a good movie. It's a movie that you don't normally would associate with somebody younger getting everything that, that's involved with that film because that's a film that has a lot of layers to it that as you get older, you're able to understand even more. And I think some of the great science fiction movies of the 50s and the 60s and so on are the ones that can you can view at different levels and see different things. And I think that's when you have a TV show or a movie or a book or whatever work of art it is, that's when you know you have something that has good quality when it's able to hit people at different stages of their life.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Shrinking man is definitely like that. You know, like, you know, invasion of the body Snatchers would be another one, you know, to, you know, that you're right. Like no matter what age you are, there's, it has something to say to you. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And I know your next thing on IMDB that you worked with, you went back to dinosaurs and you went back to the cave caveman, to a film that I remember seeing in the theaters of Ringo Starr caveman. And, and, and that, that was, that was an interesting film to watch because it has humor and, and, and comedy and dinosaurs with it. What was your involvement like with um, the movie?
1: Well, on that one, that was more, of get uh, you know, just what I would call, you know, like a, you know, work for hire, you know, I wasn't really doing anything creative on my own there. Uh, I was primarily hired uh, by Jim Danforth. Now, as I said, Jim, uh, you know, Jim helped us on uh, Planet of Dinosaurs, and I, I first worked with him on, uh, you know, Flash Gordon. Even though I, I knew him a bit before that, I mean, on Flesh Gordon, you know, he, you know, was kind of the first. It was the first time that I ever worked with him. But you know, on Caveman K- K- was a, a show that uh, Jim was, good, you know in charge of the special effects and so he you know just asked me if I would like to work on it in a you know primarily he wanted me to work doing uh, uh, making the background plates that they would you know then use to do process projection. I guess he you know knew that I you know since I had already done process projection I'd at least understand what these plates are for. I don't think I had done any optical printing at that standpoint but you know, the equipment is all kind of similar. It's more of just the configuration that it goes together. So that's kind of why he brought me on initially. So, you know, I, I wasn't on the stage that much. I did end up doing, you know, some setups, you know, like miniature setups for the, or lighting for some of the shots. But primarily I was, you know, in this little dark room, you know, uh, making the background plates they were going to use. So, uh, you know, it was a very interesting show, again, because uh, uh, that was the first time that I worked with uh, what's called VistaVision. You know, the gym, uh, VistaVision is 35-millimeter uh, film, but it's run through the camera sideways. So, uh, you know, regular 35-millimeter film runs, like, you know, top to bottom. And, if you know, you're looking at the film, the picture that you see on a movie screener you did back in the days they shot and filmed was uh, four perforations high you know uh, but this uh, division uh, was a process they came up with actually back in the 1950s to get uh, more information on the negative so what they did is they turned the film sideways it's running through the camera now sideways and instead of four perforations it's now eight so it's it literally ends up being over twice the information that the regular thirty-five millimeter had, and Jim was using that for his uh, rear projection, and it it helped considerably. You know, when because when you're du- duplicating something one to one, that's when a lot of the grain shows up. But by uh, making the background that you're projecting, you know, larger than what you're actually photographing onto, it actually improves the look of it quite a lot. So. Uh, the dupes that we got on K-SAN looks quite good, you know, due to Jim, you know, insisting that we use the larger film format.
0: That's something I never knew. You know, I mean, it's like part of me knows, like kind of it's a, not knowing how you would go about doing it and like turning the film sideways is the first time I've heard somebody explain that to me.
1: Yeah, it's the same basic film. I mean, which is great. You know, you use the same 35 millimeter film stock. So, there's really no difference when you send it into the lab to have it developed. You don't have to do anything special. I mean, you've, you've probably also heard how of uh, like a uh, 70 millimeter film, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, which, you know, that is of course a larger film format, but there the film is that, you know, physically larger. So you need a, a whole different uh, processing and printing, you know, facility to do that. You know, the, this division was very clever and that they, Kept it with the same film format, yet they doubled the uh, quality by running it sideways.
0: Cool, that's interesting. And so that led you to doing the um, the background setup. And I know in your next film, the Creep Show, you were doing the matte painting photography. Is that similar? And Which show was that? <laughs> a Creep Show. Oh, Creep Show. Yeah. Uh, well, uh,
1: what happened there? Trying to think, trying to remember, you know, you know, creep show show uh, that w- that was done at a uh, facility run by a man named David Stites, and I I might have, I don't remember if he was working on Caveman, and I met him there, and I don't remember exactly how I met David, but all these people kind of knew each other, you know, so you know you would, you know if you weren't working with them, you know, somebody might come by and visit. So you got, got to know it was a pretty small world in those days. Yeah, Creep Show, the re- work I did on Creep Show was at uh, David Stipe's company. You know, It's it called David Stipe's Productions. Uh, and, you know, he had a small effects company, but he primarily uh, concentrated on doing matte paintings. Uh, I think maybe he had got his start on uh you know, at Universal when they were doing, uh, you know, I think they were doing, uh, like, you know, Buck Rogers and, you know, a few TV shows there. But, uh, oh, but he he goes way back. You know, he he was doing things back into the 60s. But anyway, by the 80s, he had his own company. And, you know, he hired me as a cameraman, primarily shooting, you know, Matt paintings and things. So, uh, pre-show. I remember, you know, photographing some of the paintings, and you know, just helping to set up. You know, it. Uh, the work kind of, you know, would, would overlap. Sometimes, you know, you're not just photographing something. And I remember, you know, like some, you know, in Creepshow. I think one of the sequences had to do with like these plants that were growing everywhere, and I remember, you know, that just even. Uh, you know, adding some like miniature plants in front of the painting to just kind of give it a little more depth, you know, so maybe something closer to the camera goes a little more out of focus, you know. Things like that. So, uh, so I worked on a number of, of shows at David's, but yeah, Creep Show was, was one of the main ones.
0: Now when you're working on Creep Show, did you happen to work with Rick Catazone? I don't think so. I think I think Rick
1: I mean, I, I know Rick, but I think primarily he's on the East Coast. I believe.
0: Isn't yeah, he, I think he, he does live on the East Coast. But I'm, a, you know, I'm not sure if he always lived there. But I know he was involved yeah, in I, Creep Show, the movie, and I wasn't well, sure if you two he too worked
1: together. on a lot of shows. And I know he has a very extensive credit list. But I think he, I think he had his own company on the East Coast. But I'm not absolutely sure. I don't remember working directly with him. But I know we worked on several of the same shows because I think he also worked on, um, I think he worked on evil dead too, but you know, that was also, you know, he was on the East coast. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not sh- I, I don't think we actually worked, you know, in the same facility together, but uh, yeah, I, but yeah, definitely on some of the same shows.
0: I was just curious. Cause you see somebody who I've met a few times at different conventions and on the East coast and, uh, mm-hmm. Um, who's agreed to let me interview him, which will be, um, I'll be interviewing him in February, which will be coming out after your interview. Uh, for listeners wondering, we're doing this interview in December of 2021, and it'll be coming out in 2022. So, but it's kind of interesting, you know, I was looking at how you guys seen to be in the same movies, but I wasn't sure because obviously being on different coasts, you know, at least now you guys are, I wasn't sure if he was still that way back then for him. Um, if, if you guys actually got to work together or whether it was because of the nature of your guys' jobs, you could easily be working in separate areas and never, even never even, even if you were on the same coast, you could have still never saw each other.
1: That happens. You know, uh,
0: you know it,
1: I think it, you know, it still happens in you know, on effect. You know, shows get kind of broken up as far as like where the shots are and, uh, you know, a lot of these things I'm not really aware of, uh, you know, you know how they kind of come up with it or how they divide it up. But, but yeah, but there are definitely, uh, you know, multiple companies that seem to work on these shows. You know, it could be just because, you know, maybe when they were, you know, budgeting the time, you know, they figured that, you know, one company, you know, most of these were most of these companies were rather small back in the day. You know, you you might have like you know a half dozen people working in a little shop somewhere. Uh, you know, nowadays, you know, with doing the CG, you might have like a hundred people or two hundred people. Uh, but you know, things were considerably different back then. You know, but the shops were generally much smaller, and unless you were, you know. Uh, ILM or, you know, a few of those big ones. But uh, mostly they were just kind of little shops run out of an industrial building somewhere.
0: Now, your next film I wanted to bring up is one of my personal favorites for practical effects. I mean, I know you're a part of a huge team involved with John Carpenter's The Thing. But it was just, to me, when people talk about practical effects compared to CGI, I always say to them, have you ever seen John Carpenter's The Thing and seen practical effects? That's that's the movie I like to show, especially because you can compare it with the prequel movie that came out several years ago, The Thing, and you can really get a contrast between CGI not done as well and the practical effects <laughs> done yeah. very well and, and, and really get a compare and contrast the two. What was your involvement like on The Thing? Because that's that's one of my personal favorites.
1: Well, I was brought onto that by Randy Cook. You know, Randy Cook, uh, who I believe you know I met for the first time, or at least worked for the first time, with Randy on Caveman. So you know, he was one of the key animators on Caveman. So I got to know him on that show, and then uh, the thing came along, and Randy was you know hired to do some stop motion on that show. Now. You know, you'd actually have to talk to Randy to be sure you are getting this 100% accurate. So some of this is just my impression of how things happen. But from what I understand, they the producers were not sure at the time that Rob Bottin was going to finish all the sequences that they wanted him to do. You know, there was just so much work, you know, when they uh, came up with this sequence at the end of the film where the Blair monster, you know, comes up and does this final kind of threatening thing, you know, comes up through the, the floor. Um, they gave about five shots to Randy to do. And I believe that they, you know, thought that could probably botine was not going to be able to, you know, create that creature, you know, the, that particular creature. So, um, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were going to get it done. And, you know, Randy did a great job, you know, his animation and sculpting and, uh, you know, then I uh, did the lighting and photography. Uh, A woman by the name of Sue Turner uh, built the miniature. She also built the miniature spaceship that you see at the beginning of the show. Uh, Yeah, she's an excellent uh, model maker. And uh, another miniature maker, uh, James Belahovic. you know, uh, was Sue's assistant on that. I think that was his first show and I worked with Jim on, on many shows after that so but anyway uh, what I you know we set off you know to do these shots and you know we did get I believe five shots done of uh, the Blair monster and but it turned out that uh, Rob O'Keen you know also you know was able to follow through and get a Blair monster done but this was you know a bit after you know we were into ours and I would say you know his Blair monster did go off in somewhat of a different direction. I mean, it was the same basic design, but they wouldn't look the same side by side. So, uh, at least part of my take is that once they got, you know, they they ended up only using I think two of the five shots that we did. And my take is that you know when they get when they were able to get shots that you know with Rob's creature. You know, they just decided to go with that because it would be more consistent, just with the overall look of the film. You know, even though Brandy's work looked great on its own, you know, it, most of the work in it was Rob's. So I think that's you know why they decided to go that way. Uh, we ultimately ended up with two shots of the film. You know, primarily with you see like the tentacles coming up through the floor and grabbing the detonator. So there's two shots of stop motion left in the film. And I'm very happy with those, you know, that I have to say when I first saw the film, I was so exhausted from working on it. It was one of the most grueling jobs because, it, you know, again, being right at the end, everybody was working incredibly hard, you know, to get these things done. So when I first saw it, I, I think I was probably unhappy, you know, that our shots weren't used and, you know, I, I really didn't like the film much. You know, and I was sort of prejudiced against it. And years later, it was run at a revival theater. And I, I think actually Carpenter was even there to introduce it. And, you know, I, I got to see it, you know, like probably 15 years or more after it first came out. And that time, you know, seeing it with fresh eyes, I liked it quite a lot. I think it's, you know, an excellent film. But, uh, you know, I didn't quite realize it, you know, you know, having, you know, just come off of it so, you know, so soon before. But, uh, you know, I'm very happy with it as a film and, you know, proud to have, you know, contributed, you know, what little I did on it.
0: Well, that's what it is. There's a lot of people in the effects world, I think wish had anybody and any part to contribute to it. So you're one of the teams on there. And because, uh, you know, that's still one of the films that for – it's kind of weird now. Like when I talk to my children and they talk to their friends, they talk about that, that film being the old film. And and of course when yeah, I think yeah. of the old film, I think of the thing from another world. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting how, where you can tell where you are in the, um, in the generation wise, which film you're thinking about as the old films and which ones are not.
1: Oh, I know. I've, I've got a friend who used to run a, uh, like a memorabilia store down in in. um, uh, southern california and uh you know he was the first one to totally told me he said you know that when the young people are coming in and they're asking for uh, like a photo from the one of the old classics they're referring to something from about 1980 <laughs> so you know, to the uh you know but you know well i mean that's a long time ago really uh but yeah you know when i grew up i you know uh, you know, I, I still love the uh, the Howard Hawks, you know, thing. And I think that's, you know, a wonderfully done film, even though the effects in themselves are very simple. You know, it's basically just, you know, a guy in a costume and, you know, a few physical effects, you know, like fire and all of that. But the movie, you know, well, you don't get a much better director than Howard Hawks. And from what I've read, he actually did direct a lot of it, although I think... Uh, I think it's credited to Christian Nive, but I think people who were on the show said that, you know, Hawks was actually the director, but be that as a man, I mean, whoever actually did that on set directing, I think that felt to me, that film still holds up beautifully.
0: Oh, I agree. I, I enjoy it. And I own it. And I, I like, I like both versions because to I me, mean, they're two different types of films because oh, yeah. two different takes on the story. And, I, I think they both hold up very well, and I think every, everybody should really see those films, and both of them, and you can watch them back to back, and not, one's not going to impact the other, or vice versa. You can put them in any order, because it's not like the story is going to be ruined one way or the other, because they're two totally different stories, but based off the same concept, but the technology and the means at the time is what, how they handled it, and I find, I find it very, very interesting. With both of
1: them. yeah i'd love to see that as a double feature sometime i think that would be great yeah, but exactly like you say i mean both films are very well made films in their own right you know they they just have a similar story and but yet that's you know kind of the fascinating thing you know what it illustrates about filmmaking is you know different directions an artist can go with the same idea and you know there you have two really great films that that uh, you, can, you actually can compare side by
0: side. Oh, I agree, and just I just enjoy them. I enjoy both. Listeners, if you haven't seen them, see both of them. Highly recommend. Another, oh, yeah. another movie I highly recommend, which just had a sequel come out, Ghostbusters. course, Ghostbusters Aftermath um, just is out in theaters now. By the time listeners hear this, will probably be out on streaming and dvd and blu-rays and all that stuff so if you hadn't seen it you could still see it but you were involved in the original ghostbusters movie and one of the you all-time know, classics
1: it, it like the original ghostbusters you're referring if, if you're not careful i think there was actually something called ghostbusters that i think it would maybe it was actually done at filmation you know that bob burns and larry Storch, you know anyway there was something predating it but you know it's just getting, you know, getting a bit off the subject. But, yeah, of course, the Ghostbusters you're referring to was, uh, you know, the one uh, done in the early 80s. Yeah, and I I did work on that. And that was another one. Again, uh, I got brought on to that show by Randy Cook. You know, he, Randy's definitely, he's another, he's a person who I would say is definitely one of the uh, top animation effects artists. Uh, you know, and it's always I've worked with Randy on a number of shows and he's, you know, he's always, they're always fascinating shows to work on because you, you know, he's always kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. You're never quite sure, you know, where he's going to go with something. I mean, it's, he doesn't get crazy with it, but you know, you're always going to learn something new and, you know, kind of step out a little bit further every time you work with Randy, which is you know, part of what keeps it really interesting. But yeah, that was one that he had the, come on to and uh it was the effects were being done at a place called boss film uh you know it, they had taken over the same facility that uh, uh trumbull had had uh you know that they had filmed uh the effects for blade runner at the same facility but it was a different company you know trumbull you know moved on and then uh you know boss film uh was uh, set up by uh, Richard Adlund, you know, and you know, he had prior to that been at uh, ILM, and then he, you know, decided to set up his own company down here. So that's how Boss Film came about. And Ghostbusters, uh, I think, was their first, you know, big job. You know, about the same time they were also doing the sequel to 2001, uh, 2010. was being done in another building. But anyway, yeah, uh, you know, again, Randy was the man in charge of the uh, stop motion, and they were doing uh, the terror dogs, you know, with the stop motion. So, uh, Randy, uh, you know, sculpted those. I, I think actually the armatures, the uh, metal framework I was referring to that you need for stop motion, was done at Doug Beswick's company, as I recall. Um, but anyway, I, I got hired on to. Uh, photographed the uh, Terror Dogs. And this was, you know, first in a few ways because they were shooting it in 65 millimeter, which I hadn't used before. Uh, so it was a, a different film format, but not that wasn't that dramatically different. <clears throat> but they were doing everything against a blue screen. You know, and in the past, I had done, you know, shot a lot of miniatures, and I'd also done a lot of process projection. But this was the first time to shoot a lot of blue screen, So you know, there was, you know, more to learn there and uh, something else to explore. But, you know, again, overall, I, you know, uh, happy the way everything turned out. That was another film, you know, when, when we were working on it, we really didn't know where they were going with it. And I know we had seen parts of it and nobody was very impressed with the way it was going and, you know, I none of us thought I actually all added it together. And then when we finally, yeah, I guess there was a crew screening. I was just amazed at how everything had come together so well. So, yeah, it's actually one of my favorites to you know, work on. And I, I still like the film a lot.
0: The terror dogs are wonderful. And I know I haven't seen Ghostbusters Aftermath yet, but you've seen it. And I believe they come back from what you told me. Yeah, the terror
1: dogs are back, so. Yeah, I was happy to see them. It was like kind of seeing old friends again. I'll be curious to see what Randy thinks of them. You know, the, the terror dogs, you know, were basically his, you know, creation and uh, the
0: original one. Yeah, so for listeners, if you hadn't seen the other movie, we spoiled a tiny bit of it, but I don't think it's it, it's going to spoil the movie for you, knowing that the terror dogs are in the, the sequel, the latest sequel.
1: Well, you, you, <laughs> see it, you see a terror dog in the trailer, so, you know, they give it away already.
0: That is true, but not not everybody sees the trailers. I mean, most people, I think about 50-50. Oh, that's yeah,
1: some people avoid the trailers,
0: too. Especially trailers like that. nowadays that seem to give away too much of the movie. It's it's uh, it's like you almost know the whole thing. It's it's, And you're like, oh, they gave the whole movie away in the trailer. When you watch the movie, you realize you you know pretty much everything. And you're like, oh, that's a shame. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, it, they say, yeah. Uh, Ghostbusters, uh, you know, I mean, I like it. it, and look, it a lot of these shows, you know, we were under pressure to kind of finish it up quickly. It always seems like there's less time than what you need. Um, I know what was... Uh, to me, the, you know the, my favorite part was, uh, you know, getting the shot where the dog runs across the street. There's a, a camera pan with it. And, you know, nowadays, you know, they have motion tracking and everything. And, you know, it's, you know, incredible what they can match in you know with, on the computer but back then uh you know they didn't have those kind of uh, sophisticated programs and uh, we had to basically kind of line it up by eye and you know kind of work it out the people at boss film thought that the, the shot was actually going to be too complicated to get done so they had already uh you know got the producers to kind of write it off it's like well we don't want to waste our time you know Doing this shot that's never going to work. Mike Hoover is the, the man who was, uh, you know, programming the, the uh, camera moves. He was the, the, so he he was doing it from the computer standpoint. I was doing you know kind of physically you know with the camera. So the two of us really and you know Randy also we we really wanted to get that shot done. And so they said, okay, do a do a test and prove to us that you would make it work. So. Uh, since the, the dog was basically being moved by motion control, and it's on a rod that kind of moved, you know, for the large jumps, and then, but then, of course, everything, you know, the, the legs and everything all had to be animated by Randy, whereas the broad jump was on the rod. We basically just mounted the puppet on the rod and then figured out the programming of where the rod would go and and uh, worked out a, a camera move that was you know basically just done physically by looking through the lens and kind of figuring it all out and, uh, uh, you know, using, uh, uh, you know, like some old articles from, uh, you know, technical magazines to figure out, you know, how to kind of do things like that. Anyway, Mike Hoover and I did that, did a test and we filmed the dog just kind of bouncing across, you know, on a stick, but, you know, for the timing. And then, you know, that was just on black and white. And then we took that black and white footage and uh, uh, ran it together with, you know, a copy of the background and uh, put that on, like, a flatbed editor so Richard, you know, could see it, could see our test of the dog in sync with the background. And we're, we have no idea. And he, he's looking at it. And then he just, after he sees it, he just turns around to us. He, he sort of, he doesn't really change his expression. and it turns into a big smile and he gives us a thumbs up. And, you know, we go ahead and do it. And I'm so glad. I'm I'm happy the way that shot turned out. But uh, it was kind of an adventure at the time. Like I say, nowadays, you know, those things are done every day, you know, as far as uh, lining up the timing and all that. But back then, it it, uh, was a bit of an adventure.
0: Well, uh, people have to remember, things are done for the first time. Everybody has to go through the process of learning it and trying to figure out how to pull it off. And thankfully, you know, they they let you do it and say, oh, how are we going to do this? And you're just like, you guys got together as a small squad and came up with the idea of how it's all going to pull it off. And and they were able to let you take that chance to show it and get proof of approval to say, hey, go for it the rest of the way. And that, it ends up being something that adds to the movie. Yeah,
1: yeah. So so that was probably in in a way, you know, at least for me, probably the high point of it, you know, just being able to experiment and, you know, get that you know, thing to work.
0: Now, a movie, you had another movie that came out that same year, 1984 in dreamscape where you were more of a supervisor with the stop motion visual effects part. So, you know, so I'm assuming you were like, were you the head of the crew this time?
1: Yeah. Um, on dreamscape, I was in charge of the stop motion. Um, yeah, I got, uh, uh the effects on that show, were being done through a company called VCE, Visual Concepts Engineering, which uh, was run uh, by a man named Pete Coran, you know, who primarily, you know, he uh, his expertise was in optical printing and roto effects. And, and uh, you know, he was really fearless when it came to uh, creating, you know, like opticals and various things. But anyway, he, you know, I guess, you know, it must have been VCE who got the contract for that, you know, show. And uh, so, yeah, I was hired through VCE to do the, the stop motion scene for the Snake Man. So they were going to have, uh, there was a live action uh, kind of a Snake Man suit that, uh, I'm blanking on the man's last name now. Well, fill in the name at some point. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, we... Uh, since the suit was already, you know, was already underway, you know, we had to uh, match the suit close enough, you know, that it would cut together. But then, kind of exaggerate certain things, you know, because there were certain things that the suit couldn't do. So it was kind of a, uh, you know, a blending of the the two things. And that was another one that uh, Steve and uh, sculpted the Snake Man for me. And although. At that time, we were no longer working, you know, directly as a team. He, was all, he had gotten into doing his uh, uh, paleo art. He was doing dinosaurs for museums by that time. So this was one of the last movies he worked on. But uh, I was lucky to get him to come on and do uh, do The Snake Man. And uh, once again, you know, Sue Turner, who uh, I mentioned, that, you know, had been doing the miniatures on the thing. She was also doing the miniatures on this show. So, yeah, you we know, work with a lot of the same people again. But, yeah, so I, uh, you yeah, know, mostly the shots, as I say, of uh, the snake man were, you know, scenes where they wanted to maybe show the whole snake man. You know, they couldn't show the guy in the suit walking because it would be too obvious it was a man in a suit. So, you know, we stylized the creature a bit more and then maybe used it in, like, the wider shots or just doing things that they couldn't get, you know, with a man in the suit. Um, so I, I think we ended up with maybe about a dozen shots in the show. Uh, yeah, another one, you know, another very interesting thing to work on. Again, just, you know, since I uh, had more creative, you know, control on that one. And I, I did do the actual stop motion in this
0: case. The guy who did the suit, was his first, you said his first name was Greg? Greg. Reardon. Yeah, Greg Reardon, that's it.
1: Yeah, I kept... I, I know more than one Craig, and of course, I'm always filling in the wrong name. But yeah, Craig Reardon. Yeah, yeah, he, you know, he's very well known, you know, for his uh, makeup and, you know, monster suit, you know, creations and things. So, yeah, yeah he was uh, the one that did that. And you know, we and uh, you know, Stephen even went over to uh, Craig's shop, you know, and actually, you know you know, sculpted, you know, did some of his work on the stop motion puppet while looking at the larger one, you know, so, yeah, you know, it was all, you know, very cooperative, you know, to kind of get these things done and figure out, you know, where everything overlapped.
0: I just thought it was fascinating with the tail, you know, how you can see sometimes when it goes from live, if you're looking really closely, when it goes from live action to the animation, the live action with the the movement you know, if if you're watching directly for it, you can you can just pick it up. But otherwise, it's blended in. If you're just watching it, like not looking for it, just enjoying the movie like you normally would be, you would never notice it.
1: Well, I mean, part of what I had in mind, me, I don't you know on that because you know we had I I didn't work on uh, the Howling, but that was a show that was being done at the same time that I was on uh, Caveman. You know, David Allen and. Some people they were working on the, the howling, and there were a few stop-motion shots of werewolves in the howling. They ended up not using them, and I think part of the reason was that some of you know the shots, while they were beautifully done, were pushed so much further than what the suit effects could do that you know once again they they didn't cut together. You know, so uh, you know they look great on their own, but you know you just of can't, can't cut between them. So I was very aware after coming off that show. So I, I was always kind of looking, you know, deliberately not pushing the state fans too far, you know, beyond what they could do, but just, you know, trying to give it enough, you know, so that it, it maybe sells at just that little extra percentage. So it was a matter of degree there, but, you know, con- consciously done.
0: Yeah. I, I can understand. Cause you, you wanted, you want to, make your work look as beautiful as you can or the best you can, but also you have to match up with what the other artist is doing. So you have a, that's more of a seamless appearance in the film, because in the end result is, is what looks best on the film. And yeah, that's the, key yeah thing. the
1: film itself is the most important thing. So yeah, you have to definitely
0: put all of that first. Now, and speaking of um, horror comedies or just like, or, or horror films in general or whatever, Troll was an interesting film to watch and and it's um, how it takes the part where everything goes from real life to this fantasy world uh, with the special effects and things like that. And wh- where were you involved with, within in Troll?
1: Well, that I got onto, uh, I mentioned John Buechler earlier, John, uh, you know, who I work with at uh, Filmation, the man who did the suits and things. And, uh, you know, by the time Troll came along, John had started to also direct some films. I'm not sure if Troll was his first, but I know he definitely directed more than that. But so that was going to be his project. He was going to was going to be produced uh, through a company owned by Charlie Band, and uh, you know, who does a lot of like low budget, you know, fantasy movies. Um, but you know, John Beekler got in touch with me. I assume, you know, because you know, having worked together on *Jace and Star Command*, you know, is probably why he came to me. And uh, it turned out there was—I uh, don't know if it was obvious at the beginning or quite how it evolved—but ultimately, it ended up there were two, you know, you know, not huge, but you know, stop, you know, stop-motion sequences in the final film. <clears throat> You know, and w- one, you know, the, probably the most complicated one or the most involved was showing, you know, the whole room kind of, you know, like plants growing over the entire room, you know, because as the uh, trolls. It's like they're coming through some sort of a mansion or something, and it's like their forest starts growing in the apartment building. And uh, they they wanted to see Sonny Bono turn into a plant and then the plant kind of burst into, uh, you know, these uh, vines and leaves and things. So that was the primary thing that I, you know, was brought on to do. And that was done, you know, our shots were done in a total miniature. Another one, again, the, I was very specific on that show. I knew it was a small budget. And so I told them I definitely wanted uh, Jim Bellahovic, who by that point, you know, to say. Like, you, you know, he was an assistant on the thing, but I'd worked with him on other shows by then, and he's proven to be very talented and very reliable, so I was very insistent that we get him on that show, and he did a wonderful job of uh, uh, creating, a, like, study Bono's apartment in miniature, uh, you know, uh, the film itself, the live action, was shot in Italy, although it was taking place in San Francisco, but, you know, Charlie Band just had a better Financial deal shooting in Italy. So, um, you know, I, I got sent over there for a couple of weeks just to oversee the shots that were going to end up with the animation. So, you know, even though there were no um, live action directly intercutting with uh, the, the plants growing in Sunny Bono's apartment, it was important to get everything documented and so we could get the miniature built as perfectly as possible and I'm very happy the way that turned out and the other shot is at the end of the film uh, when they you know the dimension uh, is going really crazy and coming through some huge vines come bursting out of the top of the building and knocking some pieces off and that was also stop motion but the live action uh, that was a process plate that I shot on the uh, uh, was a studio in italy they just built that building on the back lot and then you know i just uh photographed it and you know kind of using a similar idea to what ray harryhausen does with his split screens and animation just as you know, the vines coming up you know out of it and knocking some debris off but yeah that i like the movie you know it's you know a low budget film but i, I think it has its own charm and you know when i was in uh, you know In Italy, uh, since I was there, of course, at the same time they were shooting the Sonny Bono scenes, I got to meet him, and, you know, we had lunch together a few times. So he turned out to be a very, you know, very friendly and just interesting guy to talk with. So that in itself was kind of a treat to, you know, get to meet him like that.
0: Yeah, because I guess in your line of work, you don't normally get to meet the people that are in, you know, the the actors in the films as much as you do with the... um the other crew or director, you know, it's pretty much, it's the actors or their scenes are separate unless you were there. Like we talked about with Planet of Dinosaurs doing the, helping them set up the live action parts that are going to go with the stop motion.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've often, you know, been on the set with, uh, you know, actors, but yeah, it, it varies from show to show, you know, like who's actually, uh, you know, giving direction to them. I mean, for the most part, uh, I mean, you know, some effects people, you know, actually direct their own unit, but um, usually I I would tell the director what I needed and then just kind of watch and make sure he was doing that. I mean, uh, an example of that was, uh, you know, getting off this this particular subject, but an example of, you know, working with a director like that was on uh, Gremlins 2, because we were doing the Bat Gremlin, uh, the sequence especially on the city street where he's flying over these people. And uh, that was shot on the Warner brothers back lot. And uh, so Joe Dante was directing, but, you know, I, I was there and I, you know, just, you know, I was kind of waiting to, uh, you know, do the shot. I uh, just made kind of a stand in for the Bat Gremlin. I, you know, cut the, you know, the wings out of, cardboard and put it on a pole, and, uh, you know, Joe was delighted, you know, so he actually laid out the action for the scene, you know, going around, you know, with this pole and the bat wings on it, so, you know, he would do that, and, uh, you know, that's how we got all the timing and stuff done, and, uh, you know, choreographed the camera so it knew where to look, and the actors knew where to look, so, you know, by that time, we were doing it a little more, you know, like you know, where he would have done it, you know, with uh, you know, some very precise choreography. But, you know, it was actually Joe himself who was, you know, they were kind of, uh, uh, you know, he, he was kind of batting Dick Miller over the head with his bat wings. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, they they were all great. I mean, that Joe and the uh, director of photography on that show were very good to work with. You know, so, sometimes, they you know, you'll work on a show where, the people don't really pay attention to you. It's like, oh yeah, man, we don't. <laughs> but uh, those guys, you know, made very sure that they got the information and were giving me what I needed.
0: You know,
1: always really, you know, appreciated working you know with, with those people.
0: Well, the whole—I mean, you'd think the director and the director of photography would want your stuff to look good because it's going into their film. It it it, it makes it makes logical sense that. The end product is what everybody's trying to go for, but you know, I, I guess some people do look at it as, oh, they can fix it in post, or they can fix it this way, and
1: oh, more and more. I mean, one of the things that I've run into on a few shows is, you know, it's, you know, it's especially common, or it was in the like seventies and eighties, uh, to underexpose the color negative that you know gave kind of a desaturated look, and I think. A lot of filmmakers thought that that was more realistic, sort of almost documentary-like by, you know, by actually underexposing the color negative. But part of the problem with doing that when you're doing effects, especially when you're duplicating it as process projection, you're already losing information when you uh, copy something. You know, with a, with process projection, and if you're copying something that was underexposed to begin with, it's going to stand out that much more. And, you know, I, I, on a couple of shows, I, you know, I told the uh, director of photography, okay, for my shots, you know, give me normal exposure because I'm going to be copying these and I'll, you know, add the, you know, this underexposed effect in when I do it. That way I'm bringing all the information down together. But unfortunately, in more than one case, you know, the director of photography probably just thought, oh, He doesn't know what he's talking about. If I do it different, then I'll be in trouble. So, you know, I would end up getting negative back, That was very hard to work with. So sometimes the the director of photography would go in that direction. But, you know, there's not a lot you can do because, you know, know, they're basically in charge of that part of the uh, show on the set. So you can tell them what you want, but you you really can't make them do it. Unless, again, you're, you know, it kind of depends really what your status is. I mean, there are some, some effects artists who, of course, you know, uh, might, you know, might kind of have that power. But, you know, it varies from show to show.
0: That's true. And, 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 of course, it always comes down to also the director. If the director knows what you're trying to get and what they're trying to get and understands the relationship that you're bringing up about underexposing things earlier than they can override because they're overall they're, they're the head of the project they can say wait a minute you know it's supposed to be i know where he's coming from we need to actually do it that way because the end product is what we're looking for but that, that, that's if they're involved yeah. in the decision process on that part you
1: know yeah you know, sometimes it works you know i mean ultimately it, it all kind of works out at the end but you know you know some things could have been better you know if there'd been a little more cooperation but you know that's just Kind of the way it is, you know. You're one way or the other. You're often there on some kind of a committee, and sometimes it works out well, and other times, you know, somebody kind of takes something off in the direction they think is right, even that it may not ultimately be the best one. You know, for the end product.
0: Now, one thing I want to bring up now is I want to be respectful of your time. How much I didn't know how much longer you you have time-wise for the interview because you know there's.
1: Oh, I'm actually fine because I don't. you know, I don't really have anything to do today, so okay. um, yeah. don't necessarily include that in the interview. Oh, well, no, I'll take this
0: part knows. out. <laughs> I'm, I was just curious because, I, you know, I, I try to make sure, you know, I don't want to – because you, you've been in so many different things. and I'm going to start jumping soon time-wise, you know, over some stuff because to go over every credit, we'd be here for uh, six or seven hours. And I would just – I can't imagine anybody wanting to listen through – except except no, people I, that are I, really into it six or seven hours they'd be like wait a minute
1: <laughs> yeah i recently added up you know uh, the stuff that i just that i have listed on the internet database and it comes out to right around like a hundred things listed there but you know the the thing is that you know as we've said sometimes you know especially when you see a list like that you know there's you know like on dreamscape i was on that for several months you know because of, You know, uh, there was a lot of work to do on Disney's Dinosaur. I was on it for, like, about three years. But, uh, you know, I also have listed on there uh, uh, Magnum Force, you know, the Dirty Harry film. I was on that for an afternoon. So, uh, you know, I still couldn't resist putting that on because I just think it's so cool to have worked on a Dirty Harry film. But, you know, I I did help build some props for it. So, yeah, it was
0: there. (laughs) Well, I mean, anybody, anytime you can add a dirty, a dirty Harry film, you got to add a dirty Harry film to your, you know, it's, it's, it's Clint Eastwood for crying out loud.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. I think that's very cool. So, you know, that's, you know, and, you know, like uh, the Blob movie, I think was just like one day also, you know, that was just, you know, like a little work that got thrown my way because, you know, I'd been trying to sell Jack Harris some, you know, some ideas and, you know, he was always interested in listening to ideas for movies because, he, you know, he made low-budget films and seemed to be very interested in ideas. But ultimately, you know, we didn't, you know, he didn't, like, buy any of my ideas. But I think he just said, oh, yeah, you know, why, why don't you go work on this? or <laughs> something?" So, you know, another thing that I got to, to work on, you know, for like a day or so. But, yeah, what the heck. <laughs> All
0: right. So we'll pick back up again then. Um, another thing you worked on that I've saw. Many times in my life, and I think a lot of listeners that follow horror films and follow Sam Raimi's career, *Evil Dead 2*. You were involved in the uh, yeah. some of the photography effects.
1: Yeah, that was that was a very you know good show to work on. Um, you know, that was also done, uh, or the work that I did on it was done through uh, Doug Benswick's facility. And then again, I like I said, I have worked a number of times with Doug Benswick, so he had his his own company and he'd often get stop motion shows in that I'd be involved doing photography. And um, so, yeah, I, I know I got involved in that, you know, because of, of, Doug, you know, he would have brought me on once he had the show and um, you know, I primarily I'm trying to think on that show, the only thing, I, you know, there were quite a few shots, but the only thing I can remember specifically working on, was the, uh, dancing corpse sequence, you know, so that, that whole sequence, you know, was, was ours, you know, uh, Doug animated it, and, uh, I'd have to double check, uh, I think that Yancey auto built the armature, and I, I forget the name of the man who sculpted the corpse, but, you know, basically they were all, we were all people, you know, they are working for Doug. Um, I know that, uh, You know, at the the time that they, you know, they did, of course, you know, they wanted this dance. They, you know, Doug and I were involved with, you know, helping, you know, them to figure out the dance. What they did is, you know, Doug and myself, uh, the producer, Robert Tappert, I think Sam Raimi was on the East Coast and Robert Tappert was kind of handling the, the things that were being done on the West Coast. So you know, Robert Tappert was there and uh, they hired, you know, a dancer and uh, I think also maybe a separate choreographer. But anyway, there was a small group of us and you know, rented a little stage and uh, you know, put up a grid and then basically kind of came up with the dance as we were there. It just sort of, you know, evolved it as we you know, we were doing it and then filmed it, you know, for reference so the editors would have something and then what you know once that's cut together with the live-action uh, person doing the dance, then, you know, Doug would animate it, but you know, that way you don't. okay, that they want a cl- close-up. So we filmed it at least from two different camera positions, you know, one full figure and then one closer up, so the editor would have the ability to be able to cut back and forth and kind of get the feeling for the pacing and what we wanted to show. We wanted to make sure the editor, you know, could kind of create something and then, you know, we would follow up by giving them what what they decide works. So that was the first step. And uh, what I the, the thing that I remember uh, the best about that show uh, is uh, well, I mean, frankly, I mean, I think everybody who has seen it uh, appreciates it because of its like dark humor. You know, it's it's really a a comedy. But you know it, it's a horror film, but a comedy at the same time. And uh, the funny thing is, though, I don't think Doug realized it, and I know I didn't realize they were going for that. You know, I, uh, you know, and what but I still look back back on was the day we were filming that reference footage, and uh, when we came up with the, uh, you know, that bit where the uh, woman's head rolls down her arm and she puts it back on her shoulders sort of like you know a dancer taking the top hat and putting it back on you know i remember turning to robert tappert and going you know this might get a laugh and then he just went "Mm -hmm." "You know, he he wasn't telling us you know that that it was going for a laugh but looking back you know we actually didn't even realize you know how funny it was going to be until you know we uh, went to the initial screening i don't remember if it was like the first day of the release, I think it actually was. Well, I don't. I don't remember there was a crew screening, but I remember just like about partway through the film, I was there with Doug and some of the other people. We went. It is supposed to be funny. You know, <laughs> we were all, yeah. You know, and looking back, I I really, you know, of course I didn't discuss this with Tapper or Ramey, Ramey, but it makes sense you know, that you wouldn't tell the effects people that it's supposed to be funny because then there'd be a chance that we'd poke it up, you know. They want the monsters to be handled, you know, still to be scary, but they want the humor to just kind of grow inherently out of the situation, which is what it did, you know. So I think that's really the reason that they didn't tell us. you know. Otherwise, you know, you might kind of just do too much of a double take on the animation or something, you know, to make it a little bit hokey or cartoony. And uh, I think they, they went for exactly the right approach.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes with horror comedies, the ones that work best for me are the ones where the actors are playing it straight, the effects are straight, and the situation is what brings all the yeah, humor but, in it. Because if you tell people it's a flat-out comedy, sometimes people overact, or in your case, you might over you know do do, do things with the effects yeah. that take people out of the picture.
1: Well, I think one of the best examples, at least a film I love dearly, is uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And you know, the humor all comes out of Abbott and Costello, yet the monsters, you know, are treated with great respect and dignity. You know, it's actually one of Bella Lugosi's best performances. And yet, and, you know, he does say things and they're humorous, but it's also, it's usually just because there's, you know, a bit of irony or something in what he says. He You know, he never just goes out looking silly. And, uh, you know, I, those are the films that for me work the best. You know, where you, treat the monsters with the proper respect and, uh, yeah, I don't let the humor grow out of the situation. So, yeah, I really, that's another film that, you know, I, I mean, I, uh, it has really become a favorite of mine because I was so happy with the way it turned out. I, I don't know quite how it happened, but, you know, when it opened, uh, my sister went with me to see it and she is not at all a horror fan, but, uh, she really loves the film, you know, and, uh, you know, she wouldn't normally just love a horror film, but, you know, because of that, just the way the film is played, you know, it, it, it kind of exists in its own world. And I, you know, I'm very happy with the, you know what they did with it.
0: Well, I'm happy with it too. And I remember seeing it because it's totally different than Evil Dead, the the, the one it's based on, because that one was played totally straight. And then, it's like they 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 got the money. and They proved oh we can do this. They proved themselves as filmmakers. Now we can go back and do what we planned on doing. Which it, in my mind it seems what they did with Evil Dead Two, which lets inject the humor with the other stuff and and go for it. And it's 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 a it's a fun film to watch. It's just enjoyable. It yes it is a horror film, but it's 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 just a fun ride through the film. Yeah. And the effects are amazing, especially the severed hand and all this other stuff going on and.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's one that yeah Rick Catazone worked on. I think that he did something on the East Coast on that one. I think, not absolutely sure. I mean, you, you might remember better than I do, but yeah, that was another one he was involved with.
0: He was involved with, and I think he was involved with the hand as to what parts yeah. he did. I'll find out when I talk with him in more yeah. detail and. And for listeners, and now you got now. If you want to get the second part, you got to listen to Rick's interview, and then you can get the whole story of it. <laughs> yeah, the
1: whole story of it. But
0: yeah,
1: and uh, well, I think I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I did mention that uh, Jim Belhope had built the miniatures on that. But even on that, we we had fun kind of experimenting, you know, because we uh, as Jim was starting to uh, come up, you know, design the miniature because there's like a, a view where you're kind of looking down on the valley and you see the house and then the end of the hill going down and another hill rising up beyond it. And Jim was uh, designing it. And I, I remember suggesting to him, uh, you know, it's like, you know, if uh, you built this in kind of a forced perspective, we're only seeing it from the one angle, you would probably save a lot of space. And then, you know, he liked that idea. And so that shot, I mean, it was simple, but I mean, you just basically, you know, the trees are diminishing and stuff. So adding more to the depth, I and mean, then even even the house was built in a slight perspective so that it, it was sort of diminishing in the, in the correct perspective to you know, go off there. And that way we could, you know, it wasn't it was an entirely tiny set, but if we built it, you know, like one-to-one, it would have been just huge. So we just kind of figured out a way to save a little time and space by, you know, forcing the perspective since we could get away with it there.
0: And that's what I love about films is the... Is the um the fantasy, the elements that people can take it and just make that, as you said, a magician earlier, to me, a lot of great filmmakers are magicians where they can just take you to this world and you get to enjoy it and just, and just be amazed how they're able to pull it off. Sometimes you know the trick just because you know the trick doesn't mean you can't enjoy a trick being pulled off. Well. Yeah. I mean, there's sometimes, you know, some of my favorite
1: shots that I worked on, you know, there's, you know, a, a few where, you know, I, you know, yeah, it's a special effect, but sometimes, yeah, we did something where it just totally, you know, fools the eye, you know, like maybe, you know, another thing like maybe just simplifying the background. There was a case, for instance, in uh, um, Beetlejuice where it was like a very close insert on, I think maybe the hand was shriveling or something, and uh, that was the main thing, but you know, be on the hand was supposed to be this kind of statue garden. The statues would later come to life and come up. And uh, so we were trying to figure out, you know, we were just basically, you know, they sent us over a hand and, you know, and uh, sort of a compressor that would suck the air out of it. So we had this rubber hand that would shrink. And they said, okay, come up with something and make it work. And, you know, we kind of looked at it and we looked at the shots that it was cutting into, And we realized that, uh, you know, we're in so close on the severed hand that these you know kind of metal statues in the background are only going to you know give us like the slightest suggestion of shape because they're going to be out of focus they're going to be you know just kind of highlights and stuff so what we ended up doing is uh you know just cutting out curved shapes you know kind of putting those up on a, a very you know flat black background and and then lighting those bright and then throwing them way out of focus so it just looks like, you know, highlights on these metal statues. But really, all you're seeing is, uh, you know, cut out pieces of paper, you know. But I enjoy things like that because, I mean, it wasn't really the effect, you know, we're selling the, sh- the shriveling hand. But it's like, well, no, we. you know, how much are you actually going to see? You know, but to me, that's, you know, it's kind of like in a way we were talking about what Ray does. You know, he you know, different things, but, you know, he knows what the audience is going to be looking at, and where to put his attention and everything. Uh, one person you know, who amazes me who really knew how to do that was uh, Albert Whitlock, you know, the great mad artist. And, uh, you know, you look at his paintings in person, and they can be very rough, but he knew exactly how the film was going to record it. You know, he wasn't he wasn't painting the detail for the eye to see, you know, he knew exactly what the film was going to see. And, uh, you know, again, he was, he was just such a master of knowing you know, exactly where to go with it. I, I always admire
0: that. And speaking of Beetlejuice, how much did you get to work with Tim Burton? Because to me, he's always somebody that's so boundary pushing with effects and using stop motion and, Live action and C J he, 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 he likes all the tolls in his chest, animation. I mean, it's, it's, were you able to work with him or talk with him at all during the filming?
1: Um, well, you know, it, my experience, I mean, he, to me, he seemed a little bit quiet and standoffish. You know, I, uh, I met him a couple of times. You know, he said hello. You know, that was, you know I, I remember meeting him at uh, the editorial office. The only time he was directly involved uh, with one of the shots I was doing, you know, and again, this is, you know, uh, it it took me by surprise. We were, uh, again, we were doing these shots at VCE. I mentioned, you know, Visual Concept Engineering, the same company that uh, where I had done uh, Dreamscape earlier, you know, had uh, several of the shots for Beetlejuice. You know, Doug Beswick also had shots. I actually worked in both. Facilities at different times doing shots for Beetlejuice, but this particular shot is at VCE and it, it was one of the shots toward the end of the sequence where the sandworm is coming through the ceiling and you know grabbing you know Beetlejuice and you know going down through the floor. I don't remember exactly which shot it was, but we were in the we were setting it up and you know it was partially set up on part of the stage. You know it, it wasn't huge because again it's in pretty close with just where you just sort of see sandworms swishing by and Jim Burton came into the stage you know didn't uh, really say hello to anybody you know he went over to uh, the camera looked through that adjusted it a little bit and he was looking through the camera and I, I could see him adjusting you know the position and then he just left so yes he did come in and contribute but you know he he just kind of came in did his part and then that's that. <laughs> so well, I'm not going to touch it after he left. There, so. <laughs> that, that would be something. I like... had no problems working with him. You know, it was uh, the overall supervisor on that show uh, was a man named Alan Monroe. And, you know, I worked with him on a number of shows. And uh, so he's the one who would have, you know, probably been dealing with uh, Tim Burton directly. You know, I think uh, – you know, probably, you know, if there was some need of it, you know, he would pass the information on to me, but, uh, you know, that, but, uh, that always kind of gave me a laugh, just, uh, you know, you know, that he just came in and then, you know, in the background, it's just like, well, that's Tim Burton.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's his movie. <laughs> if that's the way he wants it, that's the way it's going to be. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, oh, I, you, you want to touch the camera? That's your choice. I'm not touching it. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, and it was fine, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was funny, though, because on Beetlejuice, uh, on you know, I, you know, especially since I was doing work for two companies, I thought, well, I'm certain to get a credit on this one. And, of course, I didn't, you know, so I don't have the screen credit on that show. But uh, as I recall, that was a Warner Brothers movie, and Warner Brothers was always the most, you know, notoriously the most stingy for giving out credits. <laughs> so... Uh, wasn't a big surprise. You know, that's just kind of the way it is. Unless you have something in your contract up front, you know, you're kind of at the studio's mercy.
0: I can imagine. And, of course, I remember, as you do, when you see the older films, and you'll see this, this credit list, and it's done within one page worth, you know, one screenshot. You can see all the credits, including the actors. And nowadays you get done watching a Marvel superhero movie, And it could take 12 minutes before all the credits have rolled through. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still, I mean, I enjoy getting a credit, but,
1: you know, after a while it didn't really make that much difference. I mean, I, I, you know, I got it. I got to just making sure everything was on the internet database more. So I don't forget, (laughs) you know, kind of a nice reference, you know, to, uh, People to look there and go, oh,
0: yeah, that, that was the year I worked on this. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and like I said, for listeners, you have to look at his, his IMDb pictures. We're only we covering a small part. It It's extensive. We're hitting like some of the greatest hits of, of movies that you might have only had a small part in, but I mean, some of them you had a major part in, in the effects, but all of them are ones people know just by name. I mean, when you're talking about, uh, you know, Beetlejuice, Evil Dead 2, and Creepshow, The Thing, Ghostbusters. I mean, these are films the vast majority of people are going to know going in, you know, you know, from my age or around my age, as I'm in my 50s you know, or younger. So Even my son, he's very familiar with Ghostbusters, and my daughter is, and that kind of stuff. So they're big fans of those films, and it's just amazing how the work just, when you do something right, it just clicks on forever. Well, it was fun.
1: Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have been involved with so many shows that are, you know, remembered. You know, because you know those those were those were generally you know fun shows to work on. I, you know, I could only probably name a couple of movies that you know, you know was were difficult or you know, you know, in fact, you know, only I won't even I won't name it, but there was only one movie out of all of those where. You know, the people on production gave me such a, you know, a hard time. For the most part, the people you work with are, you know, they're doing the best they can. You know, they, you don't maybe not, don't get everything you need. Like I say, sometimes, you know, the exposure of the negative wasn't where I wanted it. But, you know, generally, you know, uh, you, know you, you got what you needed So and uh, the people would be, you know, as cooperative as they could. And sometimes, you know, like I said, we work, working with Joe Dante, you know, it was great. You know, but that was, you know, uh, one of kind of the, the uh, best experiences. Cause yeah, he, he was really into the whole thing. And, and, uh, you know, being kind of a fan of those movies himself, it was, you know, we could kind of talk in like a movie nerd shorthand, and uh, you know, you know, he'd immediately get it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Make- you also were involved in The Gate and The Gate 2, The Trespassers. I don't know if I was
1: involved in two. I was, I did work on the first one, and that was another one, again, with uh, Randy Cook. You know, there's you know, a whole series of shows that I worked on uh, with Randy, and that was also, you know, his show. He brought me on to photograph a few things. I don't even think I was involved, you know, Photographing much or if any of the stop motion, it was mostly. There were a few, uh, you know, high speed shots or things that I, I worked on. The, the one show, the one shot I can specifically remember from the tape that I worked on is there's a scene where you're looking straight down on the floor. It's very wide, and the boy runs out, and part of the floor drops away, and then he runs over here, and the floor drops away, and uh, so, uh, what that was was they you know they filmed him of course on a, on a stage and you know had all the kind of the timing but then they matted uh, him into a miniature. Then the, the main thing there actually you know wasn't even my photography. It was the, the miniature uh, again. I would have to look up the last name, but a man named Fumi, uh, but, you know he was working with Randy. He built this incredibly beautiful miniature. Uh, you know, and had, had everything physically built up so, like, the, the floor would drop away. You know, he, he could be down there with levers and stuff and just get the timing absolutely perfect. So, you know, I lit it and got it to, you know, look like it was, you know, part of the movie. But, you know, the real magic was uh, Fumi's miniature. It was just so beautifully done.
0: Well, it, 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 I've seen The Gate, and I, I've, I, pretty much every one of these films of yours I've seen, I've enjoyed. It, it's, to some degrees, very you know a, a, a tremendous amount, and some of them just you know I enjoyed them you know because not not every film is going to be the greatest thing of all time, but I always look at it if I enjoy it, I'm a happy person you know it's it's and I'm and like I said a lot of times with science fiction and fantasy, I'm a pretty easy person to sell a movie to because I'm already I just I just enjoy going into different places and having that you know being transported to a different realm. And speaking of being transported to a different realm, you were involved with two of a nightmare on the Elm street movies, if I'm correct, dream child and the dream warriors.
1: Right. Yeah. Number three and number five, uh,
0: three, that was also,
1: you know, a lot of that work. Yeah. Most of three was, uh, through Doug Beswick's facility. And, uh, you know, had to do with a stop motion. We had a, a, you know, there was a sequence with a skeleton that comes to life. And there was also a sequence with a puppet on the wall that, you know, comes to life and then drops off the wall. I think those were the two main ones. And both of those were, you know, animated at Doug's facility. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the skeleton was mostly interesting, you know, to me, not, not even so much for the uh the photographer for the the, doing the stop motion i mean that was fairly straightforward you know we did it again with the front projection compositing and animating doing his usual excellent job but my my main memory from uh elm street three was uh being out there on location for the skeleton sequence you know that Know, it takes place in this auto graveyard, and yes, they did shoot it in a real auto graveyard, and uh, you know at night, and uh, you know so my in a way my favorite memory was you know I was you know operating the camera for the uh, you know the effects shots, and you know there's a scene if you remember where you're down in the grave and you see the skeleton like throwing dirt in on you, so. You know, Yes, I had to crawl down there in the, uh, you know, in the, you know, basically in a grave and run the camera. And I think it was Nancy Calzada who was up above shoveling dirt in on me. But I just remember, you know, thinking it was a combination of creepy and funny. To uh, yeah, here I am. It's midnight. I'm laying in a grave in an auto graveyard, and they're throwing dirt in on me. <laughs> Where else do you get to do that? <laughs>
0: And hopefully they don't fill it in while I'm still down here.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's what I was kind of hoping.
1: Like, well, I think yeah, is uh, okay, but you know, hope I didn't piss him off or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or at least, sorry, but, yeah, oh, he's got a camera down there. We got to at least bring the camera back up.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least you know, pull the magazine off and then finish piling the dirt down. But yeah, no, that that was all quite interesting. But you know, the. The sequences were fairly straightforward, but, you know, it was just another example of, uh, you know, I remember, you know, uh, you know, working for Doug and uh, again, you know, he would always be, uh, you know, very supportive and always be able to kind of focus on things. I remember a day where I was having trouble, you know, just getting something in the projection to work. And wasn't that Doug knew, you know, the technical end of it, but, but I just remember, you know, he, you know, rather than kind of, you know, coming in like, how dare you, you know? No, he was just, he was supportive and positive and just, you know, he, he could always kind of keep things moving forward, you know, that it was always a pleasure to work uh, on anything Doug Beswick had going. Just that uh, way he, he just kind of knew how to deal with everybody and kind of get the best out of them.
0: Now, there's one film you were involved with, and you were involved with it for a number of years, if I, if I understand correctly. That's Dinosaur for Disney. Right, What, yeah. was, what was, in, where was your involvement with it? Because you, you said it took you, what, three? You were working on that for, like, um three years? Three or
1: four years. It, I know I started in, well, I know I was hired in April of 96. I'd have to look, and I don't remember exactly when it, but well, I think the film came out in 2000. So, I mean, it was, it was pretty close to four years, you know, working on it. I mean, initially, um, you know that that ha- that that was the first computer job I had. You know, I'd been doing, you know, miniature uh, lighting and you know, things for stop motion, and uh, it was actually uh, Phil Tippett who encouraged me to learn the computer. You know, you, I remember. Uh, you know, I was finishing up on nightmare before Christmas and he was finishing up on uh or had just done Jurassic park and you know he you know he had already been through it you know he knew what the uh, what was coming you know that uh, things were moving computers so he encouraged me to learn the computer and actually uh you know i i the, at first when I just I just decided to sit down and learn Photoshop because I'd never even worked on the computer. But, you know, he'd let me come in and use his computer. And, you know, just basically I went through the whole Photoshop tutorial book. That was my first thing just to kind of even learn how to use it. Like, can I even do this? Well, I did that and it worked out okay. So then I got a computer at home and decided to keep learning, you know, that, okay, I'll just keep doing this and learn you know, I didn't know quite where it was going to go, but I started out by just thinking, well, you know, I, um, you know what the computer kind of reminded me of is like uh, being able to do, at that point, was being able to do the equivalent of matte paintings that you could create things in miniature and blend, uh, you know, and various things. I would know, so learned that in Photoshop, so. Uh, you know I got a, a 3D program and a compositing program and things you know very simple things to have at home and just started doing uh things on my own and uh I did a few uh you know I, I would do you know again kind of like the idea of uh, a matte painting where I would take a background and then create something that was CG you know and add into it like a castle or something and uh I remember showing some of those to, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Eric Layton, uh, you know, Eric is one of the top stop motion animators. He worked with him on both RoboCop two and nightmare before Christmas. And his, his animation is just always outstanding. And, uh, you know, I knew he was kind of moving, you know, into, you know, kind of the computer side of things. So I showed him a few of the things I did and, uh, you know, uh, Gave him, you know, some copies, which, you know, he turns out he was working at uh, Disney, you know, and it actually was very early on, uh, you know, the beginning of Dinosaur. And, uh, you know, so he took some of the things that I had printed out of projects I just did at home and uh, put them up, at, you know, in his office at work. And it was there that other people on Dinosaur saw it. And so, you know, definitely Eric putting the stuff up, you know, was you know, kind of the getting in the door. But, you know, they actually saw those things and said, "No, you know, I think we need need somebody to start doing some computer art. How about that guy that Eric knows? (laughs) 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 And so I was actually one of the first people hired on to do that. I I did a few things at home, again, just kind of concept things of, uh, you know, like dinosaurs and backgrounds and stuff. They'd say, okay, We want like this dinosaur in this background. So I would, it was mostly Photoshop, but I'd also was creating some things in a 3D program, stuff very simple, you know. And, uh, you know, from there, because, you know, after doing a few of those at home, then they started to build a visual development department that was actually going to do it, you know, in the studio. So I got hired as part of that department and worked there for like the first year. And then, Again, because I'd also done, you know, practice doing some very simple animation and working on lighting and stuff on the computer at home, uh, I had something to show them. And, you know, when it came time to uh, start up that department, I was hired to go into the the CG lighting department. So we kind of just trying to stay a step ahead of the game and, you know, have something that they could use. And, And, you know, I was lucky, you know, getting in on a show like that, being a big production and a long production time, uh, there was time to kind of gear up and learn a lot of things as you went along. So it was really ideal.
0: It sounds like it, because, I mean, that led you to Scooby-Doo. Yeah, that was just,
1: that was a more or less small show. Uh, I mean, it didn't go on too long. Uh, That was, you know, that was a Warner Brothers show. And they had their own facility in, uh, was in L.A., but it was, I forget the name of the town, but it's very close to where the 405 and the Ventura Freeway cross, you know, right out towards the, uh, the west end of the valley there. And um, anyway, they, they basically had, uh, you know, got like, you know, what I guess had been a department store at one time, and then they just turned it into their you know CG department. So you know they, you know, a group of us were hired to work there. I don't know if they ever did anything besides Scooby that do there or not. I was only hired on that one show, and you know worked however long it was. You know, you know, might have been a, probably under six months, but you know it wasn't huge. But it, you know, we still had a fair number of shots. But yeah, I think that was one of the first things after Dinosaur, and then. Then not too long after that, uh, you know, Phil Tippett's company had some work, so I moved up to the Bay Area, and I think the first thing I worked on there was Hellboy. So, and I tended to specialize in lighting, like I had done before. So that's why I still specialize in on the computer.
0: As I was say, you, you've been involved with <laughs> recently. I mean, some films that have <laughs> that have really been taking off. I mean, you. You are involved in the Twilight Saga, several movies there. Um, you are involved in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows part two. You You're involved in Ted and Ted 2. I mean, these, these are films that, you know, the last 10, 20 years, people have been watching and enjoying. Any particular memories you have of some of these different films that you did, worked on?
1: Well, you know, again, all, all of those were at uh, you know, the Tidbit studio and, Primarily, of course, I'm, you know, working on those because, you know, I was working, you know, for Phil. So, you know, kind of like whatever comes in. Um, you no, know, it, it's a different setup with, uh, you know, the computer. It's actually, I find it actually much easier to remember what I did on, uh, you know, the uh, miniature shows because, you know, there's that kind of physical contact. And, you know, w- when you're working on the computer, it's... Uh, it's fairly interchangeable, you know, you're, uh, in fact, sometimes you'll do a shot, somebody takes it over, and then they hand it back to you. I mean, it doesn't happen a lot, but, you know, because of the way the computer's set up, it's, you know, it's always possible. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, mainly looking back, it, uh, well, I mean, the, the, the thing I remember, Still to this day, about Hellboy, you know, one of the, and this is just maybe my own personal judgment, you know, it's, it's kind of what I noticed, but you know, you always get uh, these notes back from somebody, you know, you know, whenever you're working, especially on CG shows, you know, you're always getting all these notes back, and quite often it's a committee or something. And my observation on, uh, on Hellboy was, you know, I, I think the notes were mostly coming, you know, from uh, Del Toro himself. And I remember at least thinking myself that, you know, in this case, the notes all made sense and they were all leading someplace. So that's more, you know, I am attributing that to Del Toro having an artistic sense and knowing where he was going. But again, that was just my personal observation, you know, that uh, you know, there seemed to be you know, a better sense of direction on that particular show than almost any other. CG show that I worked on because sometimes, you know, it's it's more. You get the feeling it's you know they'll kind of know what they like when they finally see it, but they they just kind of keep having you do variations. And uh, you know that that's almost more of the, uh, the typical way you know a lot of uh, co- uh, companies work. You know they, they just kind of keep you doing something. You know it's not not from the tippet side because of course you know anybody, any place you're working would like you to finish it up, you know. But it's kind of like just what the producers do, you know, I, I remember hearing back, you know, I was never involved with meetings like this on Dinosaur, but I remember talking with somebody I knew who, you know, was higher up, and he said just how frustrating it was to be in a meeting there, because, you know, the Disney, of course, it was very corporate, and, you know, you would get, you know, basically notes from everybody around the table and then sometimes even notes that somebody's wife or somebody had put in, you know, to, and then it would be his responsibility to come back and take all of these notes that, you know, were done sort of randomly and make them all work in the movie. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of like the, you know, the worst example, you know, that you can run into something like that. So um, that's something I do miss about the uh, the. The physical days, so you know, things tend to be, move a little more straight ahead. Then. You know, I think, you know, they're doing, you know, I think just because, you know, the computer allows them to kind of work on it again and again, you know, they have the tendency to go back and pivot things more than they used to.
0: Oh, I can understand that. And um, what do you have coming up? Anything in particular you want to talk about that you have anything work, anything that you're working on now or anything, any plans?
1: Not really. I mean, um, you know, th- things slowed down a lot, you know, with, uh, you know, the COVID thing and, you know, I was having, you know, I was having trouble kind of working at home, you know, cause my computer setup here isn't, uh, you know, really wasn't up to kind of, you know, getting the images and stuff that I needed. So, uh, I haven't really been doing much, you know, since the COVID, uh, you know, pandemic has struck. Now, I think that, you know, from what I hear, work is picking up. I don't know what it is or specifically, you know, what they're doing, but there does seem to be a lot of work, you know, what people are talking about. So I think there's a good possibility of going on to something, but I don't know what it would
0: be. The one thing I have to ask you, and listeners, I know this is an audio podcast, and I'm I'm doing a Zoom call with Jim, and over his left shoulder, this whole time, I've been looking at this armature, you know, that, that's over there. What is that of? Oh, yeah. And listeners, if, if Jim, if you'd be able to, I don't know, like, if you could take a picture of it and send it to me, then when I put this thing out, people will actually be able to see what whatever we're talking about.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll see if I can... I think I do have a picture somewhere. Well, that that's a uh, that's an armature that I pri- I got primarily, you know, because I wanted it as a showpiece. Uh, you know, I, I think some of your listeners, the people who are really into the stop motion, will know who Tom Sadamon is. You know, he's uh, you know been involved with. I mean, he he does stop motion, and but he's perhaps best known as probably one of the very best. Uh, armature makers ever and uh, you know he, there was a you know and he quite often you know works on armatures just kind of for the fun of it, or he did you know I think he's uh, uh, living in a different area now so I don't really see him but when he was you know in the same area you know near the tippet shop he would come in and often be working on an armature there just kind of for his own amusement and uh, so I you know, he was working on, uh, you know, this dinosaur armature, and it was what it is, is it's the same, uh, blueprint that he had used for the kind of animatron or the animatic test art, uh, dinosaurs that uh, they, they animated in Jurassic Park. So, you know, before they did the CG, they actually animated, you know, kind of, uh, shots, you know, they did it with stop motion, but but giving you know getting the kind of the basic animation figured out. Anyway, this is from the same uh same blueprint. So it's it wasn't used on Jurassic Park, but it's basically a Jurassic Park style armature. And I I just loved well as I'm working on it, I loved the design so much that I just wanted it there as an art piece. You know, So I even you know, when I got it from him I even had him sign the base of it. So I just love seeing the things, you know, he, he takes, you know, the, just the technology of art of armature making and just turns it into a fine art. They're just so beautiful.
0: It is beautiful. And, and like listeners for the last couple hours, I've been able to, I'm, I'm looking at Jim and, and right, and like right over his shoulder is the armature and you just can't help be drawn to it. And I just, it's like, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the few things, you know, you know, I, I sold a few of the props and stuff. You know, from shows that I worked on. You know, just you know, because I had things sitting in boxes and stuff. But yeah, you know, this is one that I like having out. I I actually enjoy seeing this.
0: too. Uh, yeah,
1: something like holding on to.
0: Oh, I can I can definitely see why. It's uh, it's it, it's it's beautiful. It's, it's 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 something I think anybody that loves stop motion, it's it's an armature they would want or something similar too. You know, depending on what they're you know, obviously, we know your love of dinosaurs. Somebody might like a a King Kong replica armature or something, you know, along those lines. Or pick pick any Ray Harryhausen creature, you, you can almost do oh, no wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, his armatures. I mean, they were always very workable, but you know, like everything, when you see his armatures, they're generally pretty simple. You know, as armatures go, you yeah, know, but that. It's just the way he always worked was kind of
0: the most direct way to get things done. And, and I'm not going to say anything like whatever works, sometimes the most simplest approach is the best approach. And sometimes people try to overcomplicate things, but whichever works for that particular creator or artist, you know, they have to find what works best for them and then make that work. And you obviously did with the the lighting and the photography and then adapting as times changed into the CGI world. To, you know to keep things. Well, moving. I
1: always to remind myself because even when you're lighting, there's a tendency to want to overdo things, and you, you know, because you're, especially you know, if you're lighting a miniature or even more so lighting something with CG, you can always keep adding lights. And but part of the secret is keeping it as simple as you can. You know, the the more you, you know, you might think that you're making something more beautiful, but at a certain point you know, it kind of starts to clutter it up. So, you know, the, the secret is really knowing how far to take it. And I always, you know, I always had to be reminding myself of that, you know, because the, you know, the tendency is to always want to, to think, oh, this is going to help. You know, This is refined a little bit. And the secret is like, I think what I was saying about Albert Whitlock is what he He knew just, like, when to back off, you know, exactly what it needed to work on film. And Ray Harryhausen was that way. I think those are two of the effects artists that I admire the most because they they knew exactly what was going to work, you know, the very best, you know, and uh, knew how to take it there. And it wasn't always just putting, you know, layering detail after detail. You know, that, that can kind of weigh things down. In fact, I even remember on one show I worked on, um, there was a mad artist who was tending to put in a lot of detail. And, you know, it actually made the painting stand out because he was painting in more detail than the film was actually showing. So, you know, you, he kind of took it out of balance. So, you know, there's you know there's something, you know, the artist just really has to kind of know where to take it.
0: It's a fine line, and I think the key thing is knowing when um... – more is not always the best thing, you know, just because you oh, can do yeah, it doesn't mean you should do it.
1: Oh uh, yeah. That's, that's very true. Yeah, that's, that's something that, uh, you know, occurs to me and I've said to people, yeah, know, just because you can do it doesn't mean it should be done. You know, each thing is, each step is a choice and, you know, you, you have to really know what you're getting by each choice.
0: Oh, I, I definitely agree. And, I'm just so happy that you took time to spend a couple hours with me, you know, talking about your career and this, the the stop motion art and everything, and the different people that influenced you and have worked with you during your career, as as you're still going on now. I mean, right now you're in a little bit of hiatus because of the pandemic, which a lot of people are, but hopefully things will start to pick back up and you'll be able to get back out there and get involved in work again. Maybe you never know, back into stop motion.
1: And- I hope so. I mean, the good thing is that stop motion is actually, I think more popular today than, than it ever was. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's no secret that, uh, you know, the, the Tippett studio has been doing uh, stop motion shots for the Mandalorian show. And, uh, you know, and uh, you see you know, a lot of feature films they are using it more in a puppet way, but, um, uh, you know, I, as far as just the total amount of stop motion being done, I think there's more being done now than, you know, even when I thought it was at the top of the game. So that's very encouraging. I, I would uh, be very happy if there's uh, you know more stop motion coming up. And, you know, I I, I know that, uh, you know, Phil would like to see that, too. So, um, you know, fingers crossed. You never know how it's going to turn out. But. Uh, you know, it it would be ideal to, uh, you know, work on another show, you know, that uh, Phil Tippett's involved with.
0: Oh, I I know I would be happy to see stop motion. I've seen some um, low micro budget films, which have had stop motion in them. And yes, they're not as good as the ones with the higher production values and things like that, but it's still, you can see the love that the creator is taking and making with these pterodactyls and one and, um, a Minotaur and another. And it's just nice to see that it's still there. And you still have these people learning their craft and bringing it and developing it. And, and it just need you just need one big hit again to happen. And then next thing, you know, cause Hollywood is a, likes to duplicate success. And then all of a sudden it'll be popping up all over the place again for a while. And that's, uh, that's what I'm looking forward to seeing is that one big success and then boom, everybody wants to copycat. I hope so. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I would certainly, I I still enjoy, you know, the work. And I mean, even the, you know, I even enjoy the, uh, you know, the computer work. I mean, it's, it's fun, uh, you know, creating, you know, kind of seeing these scenes through and making them work. And like I said, generally the uh, people I work with are very good to work with. So I I just enjoy that kind of community of uh, working on something, creating something, but, you know, given the choice, I would really love to, you know, be involved on another stop motion project. But, you know, either one, uh, I have to say, you know, I after all these years, one of the things that made me, always kind of made me smile is that I realized that I, I would actually, you know, enjoy going into work in the morning. I would, you know, even, even on a computer show, I would actually look forward to uh, going in in the morning there was just something you know being involved with you know the creativity of you know seeing these scenes through and you know t- trying to see where we could take them
0: and again I want to thank you for taking time with this interview and I've really enjoyed this conversation that you and I've had and I hope listeners you enjoyed it also but thank you again Jim for taking the time
1: oh you're very welcome I've enjoyed it too so yeah I hope it, hope it all works out you know, for you so you know be looking forward to see, you know, how
0: you added it. That we're keep a focus. <laughs> oh, no problem. I'll send, like I said, I'll put out the copy to you when it goes out and, um, and, and that kind of stuff. But listeners, um, I'm glad you took the time to listen to Jim and I talk about these movies that he's been involved with and join us next week. When it either, either be a movie decided about a role of a die or another interview, but otherwise stay safe, be happy, do something fun watch something with stop motion in it. It's a love, it's a, it's an art form. That's great. Jim, what movie would you recommend that they watch for stop motion to have fun with? Oh, let's see.
1: Uh, well, you know, my personal favorites are, and it's, I would name it more by the artist himself rather than the specific films, but the animated films of Carl Zeeman, you know, the, the uh, Czech, Filmmaker who made things like uh, uh, Journey to the Beginning of the Time, Ta- Journey to the Beginning of Time. That's about boys, you know, going, you know, taking a boat down the river, and it takes them back through time where they see prehistoric animals. Or he did a great version of Baron Munchausen. But his films are so beautifully stylized in the animation. Uh, I would say look for uh, Carl Theeman. In fact, if anybody. Wants to just even get an introduction to it, they can. Uh, I, I, uh, this was I maybe mean, a couple of years ago, but anyway, the, uh, the Criterion company put out a box set of, like, I think three of Carl Zeeman's best films. But one of the things they did is they interviewed uh, Phil Tippett and me, uh, getting our kind of you know take on the visuals and the effects. And you can find a little bit of that, you know, I think there's about three minutes of that interview online. So, you know, if somebody wants to get a feel for what uh, Carl Zeeman is all about, just, you know, have them uh, look up, you know, like Criterion, you know, Carl Zeeman and, you know, put my name or Phil's in there and you'll probably find it. And you know, they, they found some, you know, we were talking about some things that I had no idea they were going to find such beautiful like behind the scenes photos illustrating what we had. So I highly recommend their documentary, but yeah, he, he's definitely one of my favorite uh, creative artists.
0: Well, there you go, listeners. Now you got some homework, look it up and have fun and enjoy. Otherwise till next week, everybody be safe. Bye. Hello everybody. This is Steve again. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I did enjoy talking to Jim and, him and I may not become some friends communicating back and forward since then. And, uh, You'll be seeing different photographs uh, that he shared with me, some of them from different articles, going in behind the scenes. That I'll be putting on my Facebook page and diecast so you can even go into a little more other details too. Our next episode, I'll be joined by Kevin Slick, and we're going to be talking about Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. It's a silent movie and one I have never seen before until we saw it and did the um, review and discussion. And it's one that's very enjoyable. and It's one I recommend. And you'll hear us talk more about that in a few days. Also, coming up soon is something that Alistair Hughes, who's been on the episode back in Jaws, and it's a mad, 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 mad world with us. He and I are doing a joint collaboration called Hammerama. And you're going to hear about that with this promo. And this promo is going to take us out to the end of the episode. So I hope everybody... Well, enjoy that. Hammerama will be debuting on this same feed, so you don't have to do anything special, on March 23rd. So look forward to it. I am. Everybody have a good day. Listen to the promo. Bye. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter freely And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama, is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of
1: Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental
0: 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across then and now reviews of the movie, its place in the Hammerverse, our encounters with the stars, a film poster critique, and unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories stitched together
1: from both
0: ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.